This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Matt Townsend will be here in just a minute. I'm Terry South. We're uh, having a bit of snow in the area. It's causing some complications. So we'll we'll hear from Matt here in a few minutes. Uh Good show we got for you today. Great show. We got an expert coming up, a law professor, talking about how zero tolerance policies in school will do little to curb in-school violence, like school shootings and these types of things. The situations where you hear of a young kid bringing a gun that blows bubbles to school, and then he gets suspended. It's a hot topic. Or any sort of a toy that comes in, but it resembles a weapon of some kind, and Instead of maybe taking the toy away and talking to the child about why that's probably not the best choice to make, they just suspend the child because no tolerance. And how that's not really going to be a a policy that's going to fix anything. It's just going to cause more problems. And he sees uh, some better better ideas and better uh, policies you could implement to actually make that a better situation. Maybe a teaching situation rather than just send the kid home. So we'll talk about that coming up. Uh, At first, we'll get to the news here. Uh, If you're watching the news, it's all about uh, former FBI Director James Comey and his book that's coming out. It's a uh, full of a lot of things that if you've been following the news for any period of time, you've probably heard of before. It's also full of more details on more salacious topics that maybe you don't want to hear. So just kind of a warning for you. The uh, The part of the story we'll focus on right now, Donald Trump's allies have embarked on an exe- extensive campaign to discredit former FBI Director James Comey ahead of his book launch next week with a plan to brand him as Lion Comey using a website, digital advertising, and talking points to be sent to leading Republicans. Comey's book, uh, titled A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, will hit uh, bookstores on Tuesday alongside a string of high-profile media appearances. A website uh, set up by the Republican National Committee has gone live and lists anti-Comey quotes and a series of preemptive rebuttals to Comey's claims. It says uh, Comey is a liar and a leaker, and his misconduct led to both Republican and Democrats to call for his firing. Republican Chairwoman uh, Ronna McDaniel has said in a statement to CNN, if Comey wants the spotlight back on him, we'll make sure the American people understand why he has no one but himself to blame for his complete lack of credibility. So you see both sides are lining up. It'll be a week-long fight. Boy, that'll be interesting. Or at least a weekend fight. He has a right. He kinda... has an interview, I believe, Sunday night with ABC, and then he'll be on several shows throughout next week. And it'll just be this rolling it's a book tour. fight. And the uh, websites, yeah. So I'm not looking forward to it. I just love the, the preemptive defense thing. It's yeah. not when you call someone's name and they're like, I didn't do it. It wasn't me, but yeah. So we'll see. Uh, other news, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, reportedly had the habit of taping conversations with associates and allies of President Trump are worried that some of those recordings may have been confiscated in Monday's FBI raid, according to the Washington Post. A Trump advisor told the Post that Cohen's habit of well was well known, and now we're wondering who did he actually tape? Did he store those someplace where they were actually seized? Did they find those recordings? Cohen reportedly stored the recordings as digital files and would replay them for colleagues. One source said Cohen would play the president's recordings. He would he made a conversation. He would play the president recordings. He made a conversations with other top Trump advisors and claim it was his standard practice to do so. So in the people are concerned they may have a tape with whatever was said and they're not sure what they said. And you start thinking back to situations 
It just could be bad when there's tapes. You know, like Richard Dixon found out. That's why he deleted tapes. It's always tapes, bad. Right? It's always bad to have tapes. tapes. Don't, have, don't have more evidence. Lose the tapes. The nine-day Oklahoma teacher strike has come to a close as teachers have gotten pay raises and boosted the state funding for education, according to the Wall Street Journal. Lawmakers originally gave teachers a $6,000 pay raise and a $500 million boost in education funding when they threatened to strike, but the teachers opted to walk out anyway. Uh, tens of thousands of educators made their way to the state capitol in protest as the strike wore on. Lawmakers passed several other revenue increases to benefit education. In an announcement ending the strike, Oklahoma Education Association President Alicia Priest said the teachers are not giving up and going home as the plan on launching a three-year initiative for more education funding is in the works. Many schools in the state will reopen today in Arizona Meanwhile, Governor Doug Ducey worked to avoid a strike that was supposed to start today by offering teachers a 20% raise by 2020, starting with a 9% hike starting next fall. Yeesh. So he's trying just to, it's, let's not have a strike. Let's not, anything but a strike, you guys. Anything. Could you imagine the phone calls to your representative in Oklahoma oh. if your kids are out of school for nine days? No, really. I and mean, you have to figure out what to do with them. And you've got to go to work. Uh, and. They're eating more. They're gaining weight. Right. As they're sitting home. Playing on the iPad or whatever. (laughs) Playing Fortnite. Just not going to school. Finally, a story from CNN. If the early bird catches the worm, what is the night owl more likely to catch? Is how they start the story. Cold. According to a new study, it's diabetes, psychological problems, and an increased risk of dying. Wow. For night owls. That's a downer. The study published Thursday in the journal Chronobiology International, which I heard is a page turner. <laughs> I saw Becca reading it when I came in earlier. They tracked almost half a million adults in the UK over an average of six and a half years. The researchers found that those people who identified as definite evening types at the beginning of the study had a 10% increased risk of all-cause mortality compared with definite morning types. Oh, wow. Whoa. Night owls were also more likely to have diabetes, neurological disorders, psychological disorders, gastrointestinal disorders, and respiratory disorders, according to the, uh, the yeah. professor who ran the, uh, the, the author of the study. Uh, it says, what we, may, what we think might be happening is there's a problem for the night owl who's trying to live in the morning lark yeah. world. This, this is my life. This mismatch between their internal clock... And their external world could lead to problems for their health yes. over the long run, especially if their schedule is irregular. Yes. This is my life. So my thought is go to bed. Well, but you can't because your mind doesn't turn off. You don't – you can't stop thinking if you're a night owl. You're thinking, hey, I've got all these things I could go out there and eat. Plus you're just thinking I can turn my head almost all the way around. Because you're an owl. Because right? you're an owl. These early morning birds, they can't be doing that. Mm, no. No, I are you a morning person or a night person? Morning. I usually yeah. crash. I'll, I'm up till like 10 o'clock every night, so I get up at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. And I'm up till 10. But you're a morning person, but so I, that feels okay. I shut everything down about 8 o'clock. I don't go anywhere. I don't do it. I'm, I'm just kind of watching you, TV and relaxing. Don't you go into like a hibernation mode where you oh, yeah. kind of only say really slow words? I have my spot on the couch and I watch something mindless. But yeah. That kind of morning, are you a, are you a morning person? <laughs> uh, depends on the schedule. <laughs> You'll be whatever you have to be. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a morning person. Mm. Um, in fact, so you know, I've been I've I've invented this new way of sleeping where you wear earplugs. Yes, it's not really new, but yes. And 
uh, it's never been a problem. But today, my earplugs work. My earplugs work so well, I didn't hear my alarm. Is that what I have to see? I for about it, ten minutes. I blamed it on the snow. I wish. Yeah. Well, by the way, um, snow plows out today. Yes, and they like to go fairly slow on the freeway. And there's something about this Utah County. Those that are listeners may not know, but I, you know, Salt Lake County's. A little bit bigger than Utah County, but mm-hmm. it's something about Provo, Orem, Utah County area. They'll get to it about eight o'clock in the morning. That's when they plow the road. They're roads. always, they're always behind. I think yeah. what it is is they don't appropriate the same amount of money. Is that what it is in Utah County? In in Provo, Orem area, or do they respect that maybe their employees are not morning people? Maybe I was that's just it. thinking about that. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's a maybe they're night owl city. Yeah, maybe maybe if it snowed at say ten o'clock, the whole city's yeah. clear. But 8 o'clock in the morning? Eh, I had a we'll lot of snow at my house, probably six inches. Mm, wow. And I don't know. There's an inch out here, yeah, two inches. That's about what I got. But it shuts down in Orem. Yeah. Like as if the apocalypse has happened. Right. And it's all caused by snowman. So I was hoping to get your uh, reaction. What do you What do you think? It's it's uh, the, the Sunday will be the beginning of James Comey week. Oh, boy. His book comes out Tuesday. I think it's nuts. There's there's sections of the book that have been leaked by the New York Post and all this stuff. So they finally just released the book on Amazon. But so you also have now. a White House team getting ready to debunk a lot of as this I, stuff. As I started, the Republican National Committee has a website. It's called LionComey, I believe, dot com yeah. or something. So. so that means you have the president of the United States and the head of the GOP doing everything they can to undermine now Comey, but which makes sense if he wasn't trustworthy, whatever. But yeah. also the FBI, yeah. which means Mueller, which mm-hmm. means also the Department of Justice. So which means the CIA. Right. too. I mean, eventually it's every intelligence agency has to be undermined yeah. because Comey's coming out with a book. There you go. So you get battle lines and you get, a, you get at least a three-day fight, a good three-day fight. But then there's some scare. I mean, the more and more you hear about tapes mm-hmm. and now it's – yeah. yeah, it's going to be a hard week next week. We should have maybe done a cruise. Oh, wow. That would, that would have been interesting to yeah, do that week. We should have done a cruise. Comey cruise. Comey cruise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about zero-tolerance discipline policies. Is it, you know, all the shootings that we're having in these schools, Is, is the, do we need to go back to the old days where, you know, one strike, you're out, just start suspending more kids? We'll be talking with an expert that says that's probably not the way to go. As outrage over the Parkland shooting uh, persists in uh, in all the media and all the news, you hear of uh, the the kids gathering and protesting. Lawmakers are now looking for actual policy solutions. What can we do to make our kids safer at school? And with all of the solutions being suggested, one of them is to implement zero tolerance discipline policies in school. This would mean doubling down on discipline, increasing the number of uh, school suspensions. 
being a lot more aggressive in uh, in suspending the kids um, that, that might be troublemakers or that might uh, be, you know, targeted or seen as, as, as disruptors in the school. And here to talk with us about if this is a good di- idea or not, based on the data and the research, is Dr. Derek Black. He's a professor of law at the University of South Carolina and the author of the book Ending Zero Tolerance. He's joining us today to discuss an article he wrote, Zero Tolerance Discipline Policies Won't Fix School Shootings. Derek, thank you so much for being with us again. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's always this, a pleasure. This is uh, I love I love having people that uh, are in the know and have done some research for us because when it comes down to this, we and we see a school shooting like um, like we see at Parkland and others, we immediately seem to have this knee jerk reaction and everybody kind of goes to their corner and we all start fighting. Some want stricter zero tolerance kind of laws, others think that there needs to be kind of a, a more service. It obviously shows we need more service, more support to certain kids in the school. What's your take, and, 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 and how do you think we're responding after Parkland? Well, I think what we're really doing is conflating the issues. I mean, one is the issue of what what we can do to stop school shootings and, and, and what's that about. And, you know, those when they happen, they're, they're a tragedy, and they capture the national attention, and we don't want them to happen again. But, I mean, I dare say that, you know, most schools are safe places, right? Mm-hmm. And, and actually, look at the data. School, notwithstanding these, these terrible tragedies, remains, you know, the safest place for students to be, that, you know, at, at they, get in, they get hurt more at home than they do at school. Yeah. That's, that's, not, that's not to minimize the Parkland shooting, but I think there's a set of of reforms that we need to think about that address the question of students that are seriously, seriously, you know, disturbed or facing challenges. Um, that's one issue. The other issue actually has nothing to do with that, which is what do we do with a kid who can't sit still in class? What do we do with a kid who talks back to his teacher or uses a dirty word? And that's just an entirely different conversation. And those kids, um, you know, those are the kids that make up about 90% of the suspensions and expulsions in America, not kids that are bringing guns to school. That's interesting. And it's and and it, it was in, I think, like 2014 that President Obama sent a, a memo uh, by the Department of Education um, out saying we need to we need to limit this zero tolerance mentality because it was disproportionately affecting uh, certain groups of people. Yeah, that's right. And I think what he was targeting was the disproportionate discipline of, of African Americans in regard to this everyday stuff, right? This sort of disrespect, uh, et cetera. And and the, and the position in, the, in that paper was not, or in that guidance document wasn't, ignore the discipline or ignore the misbehavior of African-American children, but rather, are you treating African-American children uh, the same when they talk back as white students? And the, dating is, the data is pretty compelling to say that schools actually react differently to African-American students and white students who engage in the same exact misbehavior. Hmm. Um, and so that's what it was really about. And I and I will say, you know, there was never any sort of suggestion that if kids are a danger to school, a serious danger to school, that somehow or another we ought to leave them in because of the color of their skin. No one ever said that. No one is not saying that now. But I think the current conversation by those who want to roll back the Obama era regulations is this sort of idea that, yeah, you know, uh, Obama wants us to ignore, you know, uh, you know, gang members and shooters. That, that mm. was that was never part of the guidance. Well, and it doesn't seem like a lot of these shootings are are happening 
uh, by minorities necessarily in the schools. And it's not I mean, it's it's bigger issues like you're talking about in Parkland. We they knew there were a lot of services provided to the to the school, a lot of support for the students. They knew the shooter had had problems, but it was kind of the next step. They didn't there was nothing they could do once he was no longer in school. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there, the irony should not be lost on any of us uh, in this conversation that the Parkland shooter had been expelled. And South Carolina had a shooting uh, a year or so ago that made national news. A young man had, had walked up to an elementary, he was, I think he was a high school kid, walked up to an elementary school uh, fence and shot through it and, and killed, a, you know, like a, I think a six or seven year old kid here and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and wounded a couple of others. He had been expelled as well. And I, you know, hey, I'm not suggesting that keeping him in school would have, would have stopped that. That's not my point at all. But for somehow or another, people are using the Parkland shooter and this, you know, this kid in South Carolina, for instance, to say, get him out of there, expel him. I can't tell you how many times I've had people ranting at me online in the last week or so saying, you know, you're just wanting to coddle them on, you know, hmm. let, let them, you know, suspend them, get them out of there. That'll, that'll take care of it. And it's like, actually, that's exactly what they did with the Parkland. Right, that's exactly. That's exactly what we did. So, you know, again, I'm not saying keeping them in school would have, stop, would have uh, stopped the problem, but expelling them certainly didn't fix the problem either. And no. So I just think there's a huge disconnection in the conversation. And you termed it perfectly. People are going to their own corners and and just saying stuff that really doesn't make any sense, to be quite honest. Right. And then we and then we turn it into, um, you know, should we have tolerance? No one tolerates shooters. Right. So it's <laughs> so zero tolerance isn't going to stop it. But it's it's the other 98 percent of the discipline problems that also that where people do need more support, they they we need to assume there's more than one cause, one effect to all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, and to give a nod in the direction of the people that are sort of arguing for zero zero tolerance. I mean, one of the things that we hear over and over again is, you know, the system failed. You know, they they should have been connected with services. You know, should have been, uh, you know, referred over to someone else. Hey, I'll concede to that, right? And, and that's true. We we need to do a better job of spotting these kids' needs, getting them, whether it's in the school or somewhere else, getting them the mental health services they need, and, and, and putting them in a situation where they're not a danger. I think we all agree. I think we all agree on that basic point. And rather than agreeing on that point, people who uh, are worried about, you know, I don't know, gun restrictions or think that Obama was a terrible president are using the the Parkland shooting as a a way to – fought old battles that really have nothing to do with the Parkland shooting at all. Right. Talk about what happens. So with kind of the zero tolerance idea, I guess, you know, if you have a discipline issue, we just suspend you. There's zero tolerance on the issue. You, uh, you know, if you're messing around, getting in trouble, we suspend you. What's what's the downside and, and what does the data show is the downside to one suspension or two suspensions? Yeah, so, so a couple of things. For the student who is suspended, their chances of being suspended again go up astronomically, which is to say, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Once you suspend a student, it becomes much easier to 
to suspend them a second time. But I also think once you, or I should say the data shows that once you suspend a student once, they actually become more likely to misbehave. It wasn't that they were a, a bad kid per se before, but you've kind of given up on them. You've sent them home, you've kicked them out, or maybe you've sent them at home with no parental supervision and they get in trouble with the law. Hmm. And so suspending a kid greatly, instead of dealing with it through some other means, suspending a kid uh, drastically increases the likelihood of additional suspension, uh, school dropout, and incarceration, right? So this this first decision, are we going to suspend you know, Johnny for three days for being disrespectful for the teacher, or are we going to try to think about some other ways to deal with these type of problems has these long-term effects. But there's this other piece of it, right? So the other part of the debate going on is, well, if you leave Johnny there and he's disruptive, he's going to ruin it for all the other kids. Well, the data doesn't doesn't really s- support that either. And here here's the reason why. What makes a difference for well-behaved kids is what is the quality of the educational environment? So what is the thing that will lead to a more orderly, quality environment in which teachers have good relationships with students and vice versa? And the answer to that is an environment that has relatively, that chooses to deal with misbehavior through means other than suspension or expulsion, right? So if you see, uh, if you're a good student and you see, you know, a school overreacting to one of your friends, you know, that's going to change the way you look at the teacher. I mm. use the, the the video that went viral in South Carolina, again, as an example. We had the school resource officer who came in. The girl was sitting in her yeah. desk. You probably saw it. You know, puts her in a headlock and drags her across the floor. Uh, she was being disobedient. She was sitting actually quietly, uh, but being disobedient, she was looking at her phone. And you say, well, you know, uh, we've got to do something with her or she's just going to, you know, create a problem. But think about the other 30 students that were in that classroom. Uh, every single one of them was harmed by being in the room when the school resource officer went to that level with that mm-hmm. student. They, some of them were probably traumatized by seeing sort of first act of violence in their life. Um, others who may have thought the school resource officer was there as a friend and to help them now see him as a person that they might need to be afraid of. And number three, the teacher is the person who called Mm. the school resource officer. So that relationship with the teacher changes as well. Now, this is just one anecdote, but the overall data shows us that when we deal with students in this sort of overly harsh way, it actually changes the environment for even the well-behaved student, and it changes in a way that actually has a, has a, a measurable neg- negative effect on them as well. Boy, that's interesting because then all of a sudden um, it, it changes everyone's perspective, and they, they start to see – well, because they also they had somebody that was messing around the day before that didn't have a resource officer come in and arrest her and pull her out. And it, so it's like yeah. it, this is arbitrary who gets who gets disciplined and who doesn't. Yeah, it's amazing. You make a great point. You know, I always find it amazing that a scholar spend, you know, years studying something and coming up with some data that instinctively makes sense to, to someone like yourself immediately. And that's exactly right. We did, you know, um, there's a guy who did a, did a book on school discipline uh, and looked at all the student surveys, and he said, you know, the students aren't stupid, and they see this going on, and at some point, if it becomes arbitrary enough, they begin to resent the school officials. And so what he pointed out in his book isn't right. He doesn't say, oh, let's not 
punish the students or let's not be strict. But what he's pointing out is there's this fine balance, right, that you can't be too permissive so the kids just do whatever they want to, right? That's bad right. for everyone. But you can't be too strict either because that has these other negative effects. There's this fine balance between being overly authoritative and actually understanding where the students are coming from. That's a hard thing to do, but when you find that balance between authoritarianism and understanding where students are coming from, that's when students achieve the best. Yeah, that's interesting. We're speaking with uh, Professor Derek W. Black, who is a professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. And uh, his areas of expertise include education law, policy, constitutional law, civil rights, evidence, and torts. He's talking to us about an article he wrote uh, titled Zero Tolerance Discipline Policies Won't Fix School Shootings. It's the idea that let's go back to the old days when, you know, if if somebody's messing around, we just suspend them and and discipline them immediately. Uh, And, you know, it seems smart, right? Uh, Get rid of the, the, the problems. But the problem is, is that some people aren't that level of problem and 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 we need to understand what's going on understand that some people might need more services might need more help might need more support um it doesn't mean that we allow shootings it doesn't mean we um allow any of this to happen but just bouncing back and forth from one extreme to the other probably won't help either derek what would you say um is if you know if you had a magic wand and we could fix the system to find that balance between the authoritative approach and kind of the the compassionate or or more service oriented uh, problem solving approach. What how, what would it look like? How how could we do this? Well, with the magic wand, I could fix anything, right? That's so, right. Um, so number one, I think we'd have more counselors than cops in school. I think we need more school counselors to 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 get at these issues. You know, students aren't going to. Uh, tell everything to, to the teachers that needs to be told. They need a safe space, a quiet space uh, with someone who's trained. So that's one thing. But the other thing is I think we can't beat up on teachers either. Yeah. And this is where the magic – I mean, we can fix the school counselor thing pretty easily if, if we spend the money. I think the bigger problem is that our teachers are under an enormous amount of pressure for their students to achieve certain – uh, scores on their standardized test scores, and they're under an enormous amount of stress, and they don't have the time to spend with students to get them know to get to know them as individuals and to treat them as individuals. And that's not the teacher's fault. Mm. So, in the magic wand world, it's to give teachers more time and space to approach children as children and not feel like you know they've. Teachers have got a zero tolerance, so to speak, you know, uh, lever hanging over them, which is you must uh, get your students to this level or you and your school are going to be deemed a failure. And when we do that, we're, we're asking teachers, we're putting teachers in a very difficult situation. Man, that's so true. And, uh, and more, you know, then we get back to grades and all the testing we've got to get these kids, these uh, students ready for. Do you, what would you suggest just to the rest of us parents that, uh, maybe aren't in the school system, we're not running for office. Are there things we could do that might be able to be more supportive of 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 our own schools and our and the kids that we do have more responsibility over our children? Yeah, well, I think our teachers need our support, and we can't we can't expect them to fix everything. And when our teachers feel like they're taking on the world's problems, that only puts more more pressure. So I think, you know, we shouldn't attack our teachers. We should, uh, and we shouldn't, you know, blame the teachers uh, for for all the problems. I think we as parents have to be involved in schools. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago was was National Teacher Week. You know, mm. 
help them out however you can, make them feel wanted and, and reward them. But I think also we need our students to have respect for their teachers. So, you know, I think in today's world we're all so isolated. We go to our own corners on every issue, and it's including on whether the, the teacher did something right in class. Yeah, I am always very hesitant to second-guess anything a teacher has done in front of my children. That's not to say the teachers were right, but I think the children need to respect the teachers. And so um, I think we should always be conveying that message to our children as well. You know, if we had to have a discussion with adults, let's do that on adult time and adult space like adults. Yeah, great stuff. Derek, thank you so much for your insight and your time. Again, Derek W. Black is a professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of the article on theconversation.com, Zero Tolerance Discipline Policies Won't Fix School Shootings. Great insight. And isn't it interesting how we kind of fall back to the same old arguments of put them in jail, incarcerate them, when really, uh, and as we put more and more in jail, we're realizing we've actually been supporting fewer and fewer with mental health options. When the men- and, and now a lot of our mental health is being, extreme mental health care is being taken care of in jails and in prisons. Uh, there's more to a, a balance of these issues than just putting them in jail or suspending these schools. We have to deal with some of the other mental health issues as well. We will continue uh, doing what we can to help uh, make this world a safer place and uh, to watch out for our kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Isn't it interesting? We we go through life and uh, we need to communicate. We we say we want to communicate, and yet a lot of us, I, I feel like we just don't know how to do it. We we know how to make noises and we know how to share our, our opinion, but do, do we really know how to handle the difficult and the more difficult conversation? So I wanted to take this time um, to to give you some ideas, some tools for how we go about having a crucial conversation or a vital conversation, a difficult conversation. By the way, those are all books that have been written, most of them written on theory called dialogue theory about how we have, uh, you know, these these really important dialogues versus debates. We're not here to debate everything, but debate's great if, uh, you know, if if you want the most aggressive communicator to be the one that wins. It doesn't – in a debate, um, it doesn't always mean the best argument wins. Sometimes just the better debater wins. And so today, uh, because everything can't just be debated, some things are actually principled and sometimes we need to just understand. Here's some skills that might help uh, along the way. Uh, in fact, Dr. John Gottman teaches – one of the first ones is, is called Soften the Startup. Um, Dr. Gottman uh, teaches that the art of the soft startup – has taught us how a conversation starts is usually how it will end. So if you start a conversation with aggression and aggressiveness like, you idiot, you're so blah, 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 blah. The minute you started it with a hard startup, you're probably going to have a hard, ugly finish. So controlling your emotion up early in the conversation is really essential. And um, part of what you might want to do is before you start having the, the more difficult conversations, make sure you're checking your emotion, you're checking and evaluating how you're handling things 
because you will be setting yourself up and setting up the future of the conversation um, based exactly on how you approach it. That's why, too, you may not want to wait to deal with something until, you know, everything's difficult and you're mad and you feel rejected and frustrated. You just don't want to wait that long. If you wait that long, you might just react to some situation and then it's game on. Rule number two, recognize the emotion that is going on in yourself and others. What I teach is a process called get real and the R of get real is recognize the emotion of the other and literally hold it up for them. I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what you're talking about. Tell me what's going on. Use their emotion as the guide to the conversation. That's how we check how deep we are into this conversation. It's how we check uh, if there's any progress really going on is based on the emotion. If we're having a healthy, good conversation, we should see the emotion slowly abating and going away, right? The negative emotion, I mean. And we should see a more neutral emotion starting to come out. And then eventually, we should be able to turn it to a positive emotion. But you've got to be able to recognize emotion in yourself and in others if you want to have a conversation that works effectively. And by the way, recognizing the emotion helps us not be so reactive to it. I need to see the other person is frustrated with me. And then if I can show them that I'm seeing it, it usually builds trust because they see that I'm not going to react to what they're saying. I just, I want to hear, I want to understand more about it. Reason being is the third point is we, um, behind every emotion, there's a story. So if I recognize your emotion, I can see you're frustrated with me, then explore their story. What's going on? And let them tell the story. We, a lot of times we don't let other people tell their story. We jump in. We argue with their story. Every time they tell us a little bit more about their story, we immediately debate their point. We, we argue with their point. And it just frustrates them to the point that they're so angry and, and they have all this pent-up emotion because nobody is helping them understand it. And when that's going on, game on, folks. Game on. Let people share their stories so you can gather more and more information about what's really going on. So what I hear you saying is this, this, and this. So it sounds like you felt hurt when I did this. Tell me more and let them tell more. The reason we want them talking is because it lowers their emotion. So if people have emotions and we allow them to tell their story, then it will tend to lower the emotion and increase your understanding. And then the A of get real is attend to their deeper needs. Behind every story, you can hear the deeper issues that they need. Is it a safety issue they're really talking about? Is it a trust issue? Do they feel unappreciated, disrespected? Do they feel invalidated, discouraged? Do they feel like you're not dedicated? Don't listen to what they're actually, uh, I call it the smoke. Don't, it's not about whatever you're fighting about. It's usually not about what you're fighting about. It's not the argument of who put their car where or why didn't why did you park behind me? It's not about that. It's about the deeper issue that's going on underneath it. And so listen to the deeper issue because if you keep addressing the issue in the smoke, then the smoke always is changing. That's why sometimes you you guys in your relationships we can fight about the same thing over and over and over again or we can fight about a million different things because we're never dealing with the deeper issue. So attend to their deeper need, listen to it, hold that up so you feel unappreciated, you feel disrespected when I park behind you. And I 
have to leave before you. And it frustrates you because you always have to come back in the house and fix the problem, right? And talk about it and see if we can't truly understand what's going on. And then last but not least is lift the conversation. I believe strongly 80% of our arguments, we actually agree on everything. 80% of what you argue about, I bet you have 80% agreement on what you're talking about. I know I shouldn't park behind you, and I know I shouldn't be angry and frustrated when you do, and I agree with you, and we need to figure out a better way to do it, and we agree on most of it, but we're hijacked by our emotion, and it sets us up. So lift the conversation by showing people where you're with them. I agree. I admit I did this. I apologize. I want to be better. I appreciate this. I I acknowledge that. A lot of times all we want from somebody is just that they heard what we're saying and they can see what we're saying. It doesn't mean you have to agree with something that you don't agree with, but for heaven's sakes, you can agree with something you do agree with. I bet you we could take the biggest issues in society today and we would still find 80% agreement on the on what we're talking about. It's just that little 20% that we disagree on, but that takes over 100% of our fight. So anyway, little advice on how to have healthier conversations, five basic skills, not easy, soften the startup, recognize the emotion, explore the story, attend to the deeper needs, lift the conversation. Little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, we'll be talking about a better life. We live in a world that is constantly moving us forward and pushing us to seek a a better life in the future. The question is, though, what about right now? If our thoughts are always so focused on the future, will our time in the present ever seem satisfying to us? Claire Diaz-Ortiz, author of The Better Life, which is about uh, what all of us can do to help find present happiness. Uh, I I had her on the show a while ago, and we had an awesome interview, and we wanted to revisit a few parts of the interview so that we could all figure out how to to really make a better life for ourselves. I began the interview asking her, how do you keep everything in your life straight? For me, it's really, really about being intentional. And I mean, obviously, the the, the first caveat here is, is you know, I, I don't do a great job most of the time. I'm, I'm, you know, falling on my face on most days, I'd say, but I'm getting up again and trying it again and again and trying to get better with each and every day. But I think the key that we all are trying to learn is to be more intentional with our lives, is to be more intentional with our time, to think more about what we really care about, and then to compare that to what we're really investing our time in. Um, you know, it's so easy to, to think of that statistic that says that most Americans watch three or four hours of television each day, right? Mm, yeah. And, you know, some television, that's great. Maybe it's a, it's a great outlet for you. I, I love The Bachelor. It's my guilty pleasure. You know, <laughs> things like that are sure. okay. But, you know, too much of that, and you're just going to waste your life on that. And that's what so many of us do in, for seasons of lives or for whole years. I, mean, I guess that's the key, huh? Because you've, if I spend my entire life vicariously living through The Bachelor or Bachelorette, mm-hmm. I may, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and to to a huge extent, then all of a sudden I'm not I'm not living my own lesson. I'm not bringing my own music here. 
Absolutely. You're not creating your own art. You're not creating your own life and, and being who you're, you're here to be, essentially. One of the small changes you talk about, too, is celebrating your real life. What, what do you mean by that? There's an interesting post, or I guess it was an article in Relevant Magazine a couple years ago by Shauna Nyquist, who's a writer. And uh, I believe the title of the article, if it wasn't exactly this, it was something like this. It said, you know, stop Instagramming your perfect life. And the idea, you know, of her piece was essentially that it's so easy on social media for us to just see the perfect lives of others and for us to then want to emulate that in, in our own social media lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was this call for us to, to be authentic, to be authentic online as we are in real life. And I think it's a very hard thing to do. Obviously, you know, so many of us now, we, we essentially in social media, we kind of have these mini brands. I mean, most of us don't think of ourselves as brands, but when you have a social media presence and you're putting something out there, you're effectively kind of creating a little mini brand of yourself. And it's important to really think about what, what you're giving out there. Is that really who you are? And is that really who, you know, on an honest day-to-day basis you want to be? And, you know, that doesn't mean you've got to show your (laughs) your messy kitchen every morning on Instagram by any means, but it does mean just bringing more authenticity into the fold. And what do you become? I mean, what do you become when you're more authentic? It's almost like you have to deal. You actually, you actually appreciate yourself more because it's me. Absolutely. This and, is me. And absolutely. And then aside from just appreciating yourself more, you're able to build real relationships with people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've lived a lot of my life online, I think. And as a result, I've actually built really great friendships and relationships with people that have begun in my online life. So I don't, I don't believe that you know, your online life is, is so, so very distinct from your quote-unquote real life. But in order for those relationships to mean anything, you've, you've got to be authentic. Mm. You also give some great advice. Uh, quit something every week. I sure, so that, Talked about that. That's brilliant to me because most of us keep adding things every week until we explode. Absolutely. So my friend Bob Goff, he's the author of a book called Love Does, which is amazing. And he has this practice. I don't know how many years he's done it. He calls it Quit Thursday. And essentially every Thursday, he, he quits one thing, and it could be a little thing or a big thing. And just the idea behind this is just that in order to live good lives, we need to tear ourselves down to, to the essential people we, we want to be and intend to be. And so one way to do that is to sort of, you know, cut out, cut out the excess, essentially. That's so great. I mean, it could be anything. It could just be a habit a, or a slight habit or, um, you know, it's easy to just say yes, isn't it? And that's, I mm-hmm. guess, where you lose your authentic self because you're saying yes when you really mean no, but you want to please people. Right. And then you end up feeling regret and um, anxiety and just feelings of upset that you did say yes and you try to sort of blame it on others. But honestly, it was it was you that agreed to do it. Yeah, yeah. You can't blame anyone but you. Hey, as we wrap this up, we got about a minute left. What would you say? I always ask for the one thing that is the big thing. If, if you had to just think of one thing that we could do today that would make a difference or start the difference in our lives, um, what would that one thing be? I think that one thing would be quieting your mind, just getting away from everything for a few minutes. And whether that means just sitting there thinking of nothing or praying or writing, it's just creating that space so that you can sort of start to hear what your life is trying to tell you. Mm. Uh, We just go from morning to night, from morning to night, and we race, race, race through our lives. And 
we don't even know what's 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 really going on most of the time. So, so true. That was uh, Claire Diaz-Ortiz, and uh, she, again, is the author of the book The Better Life. And, boy, we do. We need to somehow learn how to be in the moment, don't we? We'll take a break and come back and be in the moment. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, Terry's been researching all night, and uh, I mean, I guess we're making progress, it sounds like, in the on the human front. Right. So new research seems to indicate that a majority of would-be American parents may no longer hope to have a boy. So <laughs> they're okay with girls now? I guess. It says experts suspect Holy this cow. is at least a symptom of some good things, including increased opportunities for girls, but may also be a product of a cultural concern with the behavior of boys and men. Girls seem to be having an increase in opportunity. Yeah. Boys seem to be maybe they'll just get in trouble. Well, isn't that interesting? They, they even said – I just heard a study that said uh, parents are more a lot, two times more likely to talk to their daughters about sex than their sons. Wow. It's probably because they're trying to protect their daughters from them boys. Yeah, that would be it. So Gallup polls have illustrated a bias towards sons in the past. Data from 1941 through 2011 revealed that 40% of respondents would still rather have a boy if they could only have one child, compared to 28% who said they'd rather have a girl and 32% who had no preference. Wow. Well, I guess some of that, too, is the name. you got to keep your name going or – right. Now, but, the, the, the self-reported uh, information here is it's all hypothetical. Yeah, right. Right. But the preference leaned towards boys. Now they're saying it's now seems to be shifting and leaning towards uh, either no preference or leaning towards a girl because yeah. of increased opportunity. And, uh, you know, they, they can maybe just society's yeah. idea and the way we talk about daughters and, and women, it's just it's changing that opinion. That's good. That's good. See, and I guess as it says progress. here, having boys could be trouble. Well, the stereotypes, right? Totally. Took them a long time to figure that one out. <laughs> wow. It's it in reality, they're just kids, right? And we love them. They're all good. I've had one girl and five boys, and now I know that I will at least have one child that will take care of me when I'm really old. There you go. And I don't think it'll be my voice. <laughs> anyway, great learning, I think, for all of us. We'll continue the journey doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Hey, I'm joined by Terry South and Becca Hurley. The gang is here. We, uh, we're we trying to survive a spring storm in Utah. A lot of, con- a lot, a lot of crazy weather this year. And today we, I got to follow snow plows in to work. Uh, but it gave me more and more time to listen to um, the information about Comey's book coming out. Ugh. Yeah, I'm really not looking forward to Sunday because he'll have his uh, what ABC is going to 
show the interview they recorded last week, I think yeah. it was. And so that's going to happen, and then everyone's going to respond to that, and that'll be about three days of you know people Craziness. going nuts. you got to wonder if this is going to be good for Mueller. In a way, yeah. it, it may not He can go back help to just him. operating behind the scenes and getting his, his work done. Unless, of course, this brings down more and more play against the FBI, the Justice Department. Right. <sighs> Which is interesting because you have the new uh, Secretary of State who's being – he's having his confirmation hearings. Yeah. And he was the former head of the CIA and those questions will probably get into that policy situation and is this true because stuff's in the book right so i don't know how how it ends up except i mean the president's already tweeting about it (laughs) and refuting things and it's like okay whatever and 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 all while all this is happening he's having meetings trying to figure out if we're going to launch missiles and bomb syria in response to their chemical attack last few days ago oh yeah we're still dealing with that he was having meetings yesterday. I was listening to an interview with a reporter saying they were at the Pentagon just kind of on standby, waiting to see if we're going to war. Not sure. You know, can we publish just, our articles tonight or do we have to wait? And they said, keep waiting. Okay. So they're just all hanging around. So they're just waiting for a nod from the White House? I, they were having uh, the National Security Council were having their meetings at the White House. They're at the Pentagon waiting for a spokesperson to say yay or nay on launching missiles and – they're just standing there waiting, but as that was happening, everyone's reading about the Comey yeah. uh, excerpts that were coming out in the New York Post and the different papers that had it, and they're like, "Oh man, <laughs> this is <laughs> Darn crazy. It. All this goes on. Different motivations happen. You know, someone takes executive time and watches his favorite TV shows and then reacts to them, and then that's how we make policy because that's how it works now. This is the this has been a crazy, and it just seems to get be getting heightened. And now Comey comes out with a book, and now we've got to talk about. All of that, plus some of his his weird. Uh, I don't know. He addresses President Trump's clothing. Yes, he talks about his tie being too long, his complexion. I, I don't know what that means, but is it orange? What's he talking about? And then he talks wow. about the size of his hands. Oh boy, Comey's a big guy. He's got big hands. He Comey's says, like a six seven guy, isn't and he, he says Trump's hands are. He goes, they're small, but I mean everyone's hands are small in, in his in Comey's hands, but not, <laughs> nothing smaller than normal. So he kind of gives an assessment of uh, the smallish uh, hands that other people have teased the president about, and which just causes him to get mad because that's a, okay. a button for him. Well, that's, so, yeah. See, this isn't going to be a positive thing. Hopefully there's other things to talk about without us bombing another country. This is why we do other topics. In a bit, we're going to be talking about how to prioritize your partner over your kids. Wow. That way you don't have to talk about any of this. You can just go home today and say, hey, this is what I learned. I need to put you first, honey. There you go. Uh, Let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? President Trump has confirmed reports that he is considering rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade agreement he decided to quit shortly after taking office, but only if he gets a better deal than former President Obama's team had. They worked on that deal for two years, I think it was. There's all these, basically every Pacific Rim country except China is involved. The whole point was to curb China's influence. And then they get out of it, which basically 
gave it all over to China to be the one that influences how that group works. Yeah, so now, now we're, we want back in now on it. Now we want back in because China is messing with soybeans and we want to protect farmers. And it's like that's what that deal was supposed to do in the first place. So it's kind of an interesting oh, reversal wow. here. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. Sassy Sass? Nebraska, lots of farmers. He's yeah. very agriculturally minded. Told reporters that uh, Trump reaffirmed the point that TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, might be easier to join now. Trump pulled out of the agreement shortly after taking office, saying he preferred negotiating bilateral deals. In the Thursday meeting, Trump also said that new tariffs between China and the U.S. may never actually be levied. They were just sort of a threat. Right. As the president uh, thinks China is going to treat us really fairly. Trump has suggested he was open to rejoining the TPP during a February press conference with the Australian prime minister. If you remember in the yeah. first few days of his presidency, he was on the phone yelling at him over this immigration. Is the, this issues. is the dilemma. All of the things he did in the first year, he now has to fix, yeah. deal with, talk to those people. Right. Second year always seems harder. Everything's negotiable. Yeah. It's all about just, you know, what what's the deal? President Trump will reportedly pardon Scooter J. Libby, the former chief of staff of Vice President Dick Cheney, who was convicted of lying to the FBI and obstruction of justice, according to the ABC News report. Trump has reportedly signed off on the pardon and has been considering it for months. Libby was convicted in 2007 during the investigation into the leak of covert CIA operative Valerie Plame's identity and was sentenced to 30 months in prison. He claims he, quote, forgot that Cheney told him Plame's Plame's identity a month before he originally said that he had found out. President George W. Bush commuted his sentence, sparing him jail time, but did not pardon him. Libby has also said his law license and voting rights have been restored since his conviction. Trump has already pardoned former Sheriff Joe Arpaio after he was found guilty of criminal contempt. Now, if you remember, Libby... During that whole situation where maybe somebody in the White House outed a covert CIA operative and put her life and family's life in danger. Right. And also the the operative she worked with overseas and all these other people. Um, Libby is seen as the guy that fell on the sword for someone higher up in the White House. Yes. During that whole situation. Uh, was so. it somebody that shot a... While hunting, maybe. Could have been the vice president. (laughs) Who knows? Sure. This story was interesting yesterday. For seven decades, Never Forget has been a rallying cry for the Holocaust Remembrance Movement. But a survey released Thursday on Holocaust Remembrance Day found that many adults lack basic knowledge of what happened. And this lack of knowledge is more pronounced among millennials, whom the survey defined as people ages 18 to 34. 31% 31% of Americans and 41% of millennials believe that 2 million or fewer Jews were killed in the Holocaust. The actual number is around 6 million. 41% of Americans and 66% of millennials cannot say what Auschwitz is. Oh, wow, really? They have no idea that it was the prison camp yeah. and the horrible things that happened there. Only 39% of Americans know that Hitler was democratically elected. Right? It wasn't like a coup. He didn't yeah, just walk in and right. take over. He was voted in. He, yeah. He done... He done run, ran for it. Despite the gaps in the respondents' knowledge, the study found that overwhelming, overwhelming consensus, 93%, that all students uh, should learn about the Holocaust in school. That's kind of 93% is the opinion that they believe this should be taught in school. So we, yeah. we haven't got to a point where we're pushing it out of schools, I guess. And Holocaust deni- denial remains very rare in the United States, with 96% of respondents saying they believe that the genocide happened. Wow. But they can't tell you what. What? Like the prison camp. Yeah, where it probably was. The one prison. Yeah. Well, maybe that's in a way is good. We're not studying Hitler. No. I mean, we should study the impact of these people, but right. 
Hmm. Now, before I, I begin this last story, yes, um, Becca, could you click on the last tab on the computer here? Okay. I, I wanted to wait until we I'm got to the worried. story. There's been a lot of setup for this. Yes. Terry's been working really hard. Can I scroll down? There you go. Oh, right there. my gosh. Oh. Bull City oh. Burger in Durham, North Carolina is no. offering offering guests burgers topped with a hairy giant tarantula. Oh. Why? They're looking at the photo now. That's that's dead, right? Yes. The promotion is part of their sixth annual Exotic Meat Month, which celebrates the restaurant's anniversary by serving burgers made from meats eaten around the globe each March and April. So the burgers offered on the menu during the promotion include alligator, iguana, python, bison, turtle, bugs, among others. But this is only the second year that they have offered the Triangela Challenge. Wow. Brave customers who clean their plates get a Triangela Challenge t-shirt. And bragging rights. According to the restaurant, the burger is $30. It's a 100% North Carolina pasture-raised beef burger with Gruyere cheese, oven-roasted tarantula, spicy chili sauce, and a fresh baked bun with a side of fries, right? I love how it's just like thrown right in there in the <laughs> yeah. middle. The burger can be cooked a uh, customer's preference. Do you want it well done? Okay, we'll cook it well done. Well, if it's uh, going to have a tarantula. They describe idea. the tarantula as lightly salted and oven-baked. Why? <laughs> Why because, ruin uh, a good somewhere, thing? Somewhere on the planet, people eat tarantula burgers. Yeah, but not here. Well, that's why we try something exotic every once in a while. Now, uh, they said they can only get 18 specimens, so they have a raffle. So the burgers are going fast. So the question would be, do you find it surprising that there are more than 18 people who want to eat this sandwich? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. But you have to, okay, we're going to yeah, resort sure. to a raffle. We can't just have a sign-up. I'm a little to... disappointed, actually, because I'd love to see what happens if there was just like a, you know, if it was just like a menu item and then somebody ordered it by accident. Yeah. Oh, that is just not right. It's just gross. <laughs> not right. Okay. You, you can take that away now, Becca. Oh, we need to continue I've to been look waiting at that. for that prompt uh, We'll be posting time. that on our Twitter that's feed. Just, that's unseeable. At Dr. Macho. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how to prioritize your partner over your kids. Is, you know, if you had to choose kids or partner, which relationship should you be focusing more time, more energy, more attention on? Our next guest, interesting stuff, may surprise you. One of the trickiest aspects of raising a family is determining how to manage competing priorities. Those priorities uh, end up being, uh, we need to prioritize between a lot of good things, between our spouses, children, jobs, friends, hobbies. It can be very difficult to give everyone the attention that they need, that they deserve. As it turns out, how you manage these priorities is an important indicator of the health of your marriage. Here to speak with us today about why we should prioritize as our spouse's over our children is Rafi Billick. He's director of the Baltimore Therapy Center and uh, is also a licensed clinical social worker, rated Baltimore's best marriage and family counselor in 2015 and 2016. Rafi, thanks so much for being with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This uh, this is, I think, a really important uh, point that you're trying to teach us about how we prioritize. It seems like, you know, it's easy to kind of let the marriage go, the relationship with our spouse go, because the kids are younger, they need us, they, 
but in the end, we we do need to prioritize marriage over uh, children if we want marriage to work. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, they talk these days about the child-centered marriage versus a couple-centered marriage, and it's very easy to get sucked into spending all your time and effort and mind space on the kids, and you forget that there's another relationship that, that came before that, and that really needs our attention as well. And and the the data shows it. I think the divorce rate goes up like 16 or 17 percent at empty nester stage because you've got nothing left in common and your kids are gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big problem. And even before that, you know, um, marital satisfaction tends to take a dip in those first early years when the kids come along. Uh, and that's that's normal. You know, whatever your priorities are. But it just means that if you're not going to spend the extra time and effort into the relationship, you're going to find that the satisfaction you're getting out of it is much less. Does it? It's interesting because I think we feel like we're doing it um, because it's good for our kids to make sure that our kids are the priority. But you're saying it actually may not be as healthy for the kids to, to have them be a higher priority than the spouse. You know, it, it's always a balance. Of course, you have to take care of your kids, give them attention, give them time and priority at times. Um, but one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our children is a good marriage. Um, you know, peace in the home, uh, a good model of a relationship. There are so many important things that come from a solid marriage that is good for the kids that if we forget about that, uh, it's kind of, you know, forgetting about the foundation while you build the house. It's and true. it's it's likely to get shaky over time. Yeah. Is um and too I could even see, you know, your spouse becomes uh a little frustrated knowing where they fit in the priorities. Uh I could also see that you could be end up doing too much for your kids and and disabling them, making them incapable of doing many things on their own. Right, you know, there there is a problem where people spend too much effort and time on their kids and trying to protect them from everything, try to take care of them, take care of everything for them. Um, and that, that is certainly its own problem. And even if a person has the right boundaries for their kids and they're not, you know, doing their homework for them and not driving around to save them time and all the things that we can sort of overdo for our kids, there's still the danger of not spending the time and effort just because there's so much, so many things that need to get done. You got to take the kids here and take the kids there. You got to cook the dinner. You got to, make sure the laundry is done, you got to take them to ice skating practice, whatever else it is. And even if you're doing the right amount, you still might forget to, to spend time with your spouse, to have conversations, to, to work out the issues. I think one of the biggest problems that people don't even pay attention to is that, you know, in, every, in the best marriage, there are going to be arguments that come up and problems and, and disagreements. And if, if it's a child-centered marriage, so we end up turning to our kids and putting our efforts over there and not dealing with the issues that come up in our marriage, and that sort of erodes it over time. And, and like you pointed out, you know, you end up later down the road when the kids are leaving, and all those problems never got solved. Uh, the distance that grew in the marriage from not, you know, working on these issues is still there, and and now you're left with with not much that you wanted in the first place. It's so true. And, I mean, kids in, in and of themselves bring more and more issues. So if you and your spouse aren't spending more and more time learning how to handle the issues, 
then um, you're probably going to set yourself up for this spiral. What What are some tips that you would suggest or um, some secrets that we could use to make sure we put the marriage first and foremost and to make sure that we can communicate through our issues? Sure. Okay. Well, that was a super big question. So let's, let's tackle that one step at a time here. Um, I think that the first thing we need to do to, to make sure that we are keeping our marriage in mind is just recognize how important that is. I think some people feel like devoting all our energies to our kids, like you pointed out earlier, is the way to go. And that makes me a great parent and a great person. And it's true, those things are very important. But recognizing how important a good marriage is for our children, I think, helps us realize that sometimes we need to pull back. And, you know, okay, maybe my kids want me around today, but today's the day I'm going out with my wife and doing something just the two of us. And, you know, the kids may complain about that, but if you have a clear priority and a clear reason for doing what you're doing, it makes it easier. And I think it's really important to just recognize that. That makes it so much easier to be able to do it when you know what your priorities are. So recognizing that your kids need to see you guys uh, having a loving relationship. They need to know that their home is a secure place. You know, kids tend to worry about divorce, uh, especially the more it's out there now when they see their parents arguing. So giving that secure, firm base is really critical. Um, modeling for them what it's like to, uh, to resolve disputes, to, to have a good relationship, to respect each other. You know, there's this, there's this advice out there that says uh, never argue in front of the kids. And I think that's a terrible idea. I think right. we should all argue in front of the kids. Um, but we should do it in a, in a proper way. You know, not yelling, screaming, insulting. But, you know, uh, honey, I have this issue I wanted to discuss with you. And, and let's talk about that. And so showing them how to resolve an emotional dispute is critical. So there's another point we need to keep in mind. Like, this is important for my kids to know that I do this. Um, you know, showing your kids the fulfillment of a good marriage so that they believe in it. Because, again, the, the confidence in marriage out there has been eroded a lot. Uh, you know, these are just a few of the, of the reasons why marriage is so important for the children. And your good marriage is important for them. Recognizing that and being real with that helps us to forego some of the things we might want to do for our kids in favor of spending time and energy on the marriage. So I think it's the mindset that will help us do that, number one. Yeah. And then practically speaking is to, to make some time for that. You know, there's, there's got to be some regular date nights or, uh, or events that you go to, just the two of you. If everything is around the kids and everything is with the kids, you're lacking on that time for the two of you. And so I think practically speaking, that's the number one thing is just taking that time on a regular basis to have conversations, to have time together without the kids around. Yeah, it really it's it is interesting how how much it's we start the relationship, I think, because of the chemistry and we have all of this connection and everything seems so perfect and idyllic that it's almost like we we don't recognize that a relationship is this living, growing thing and we have to tend it. We have to take care of it and garden and and feed it and prepare it and weed it and it's work. Um and then mm-hmm. it's it's almost like we put it on the back burner when the next relationships come with our kids and we always assume we can get back to it, but sometimes you know if you don't take care of it, it's it gets away from you. Yeah. Yeah, like any relationship, it takes effort and time and focus. And if you don't do that, it, it will get old. You know, if you have friendships that where you don't see the person for a while and you don't talk to them, and then you, you come back together, you know, a couple of years later, 
you still have the friendship from before, and it's kind of old and dying. Um, friendships and intimate relationships take that constant input of, of relationship and intimacy and connection. And if we neglect that, we, the, the marriage will you know, deteriorate. What would you suggest the relationship with our children should be? It seems like sometimes we take our our relationship that we should be having with our spouse and we use it because it's not working there and we we almost get all of many benefits out of our relationships with our kids that that could be deferred to the spouse if that relationship were better what what does a healthy parent child relationship look like if we also have a healthy marriage um so i think it's a question of love and boundaries those are really the two major components. Your kids need to know that you love them, that you're there for them, that you will help them. But there also have to be healthy boundaries so that kids cannot do whatever they want whenever they want. You know, if you say, okay, it's nine o'clock, you know, you're in bed and and mom and I are going to have some quiet time together, then that is a boundary that, you know, if you're, you need to maintain. Um, And to show them that you have boundaries for the marriage, you have commitments to the marriage, um, and the same thing, you know, in the, in the greater scheme of life, you know, you're not going to run after them. If, if, if the kid forgot their homework or forgot to do the homework, you're not going to be the one to do it and run it over to them at school. Um, that there, there's a boundary there, that they have responsibilities, you have responsibilities. And it's the combination of love and, and boundaries that allows them to grow into a whole person that can manage themselves. You know, too much of one or too much of the other. You have too much boundaries and not enough love, so it's, they get very sort of crushed and, and constrained and aren't able to fully express themselves and fully connect with others in the future. But if it's, if it's all love, no boundaries, there's a sort of um, chaos that comes about, and they're, they're unable to make boundaries for themselves later in life. So it's really a good balance of the both. No, absolutely. Um, again, we're speaking with Rafi Billick, who is uh, director of the Baltimore Therapy Center and also a licensed clinical social worker. He was rated as one of Baltimore's best marriage and family counselors. Interesting um, little fact about you, Rafi, is that you studied computer science at Brown University, but then you have, you ended up going into therapy. Um, how how did that transition happen, just on a little side note? Yeah, you know, I just found that um, no matter how many jokes I made, the computers wouldn't laugh, and I just <laughs> got bored of it. Yeah. You needed people. I mean, yeah, I found out that I needed people. In my last year of college, I just sort of did some introspection and recognized that. I mean, I do like computer science. I like the challenge. I like the problem solving. But it wasn't working for me in terms of who I really am. I really need to connect with people, talk to people, and, and work with people as opposed to things or ideas. And, uh, you know, I made the transition over time and uh, eventually got a master's degree in social work. And mm. it really worked out for me. Yeah. Eventually, one of the things that I I wanted to ask you about too, with with without knowing where to prioritize our attention, our affection, um, it seems like we we're having more and more children, more and more people overall, who who have like attachment disorders. They 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 may have had experiences growing up that made it so it was harder for them to learn how to attach and is. I guess part of this, one of the reasons that we want to keep marriages healthy and strong is so we keep these family units healthier and stronger so that we can kind of hand down this tradition of attaching to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, certainly a lot of our attachment style is made when we're we're very young. And, you know, how, how you relate to your kids when they're very young 
uh, will definitely have an impact for their relationships later in life. What would you give us as uh, we wrap this up? What What would be the one thing of 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 all things that that we could do today that would make the biggest difference on our ability to to bring our 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 marriage closer together and and start this modeling behavior um, that you know marriage first, family I guess second. Uh, what what would you suggest we do to get that started? I think everyone needs to recognize for themselves why it's important to do that and why it's not the reverse, which is children first and then my marriage. You know, I touched on some of the reasons earlier. I think for everyone to sit down and just think for themselves, what am I giving to my kids? What's important about this? To recognize why that's important and why they want to do that. And with that uh, initiative and with that mindset, to be able to, to drive that forward. You know, the practical aspects of how that will come differ for everybody. Uh, and that will come out of, you know, a mission statement, so to speak, about why I want to make my marriage that important and that prioritized. So I think really sort of stopping to think what we're doing and why we're doing it is is key for any plan for success. Good stuff. Rafi, thank you so much for your time and uh, your great uh, work in trying to put marriages first and families first. Rafi Billick, again, is his name. He's director of the Baltimore Therapy Center and also a licensed clinical social worker. You can find out uh, more information about him by just going to BaltimoreTherapyCenter.com. We will continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. What matter, you boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, folks. Okay, so if we're going to say that we need to put our spouses first, I mean, that's that's a big deal because many even really good marriages would say, I'd really still rather prefer the kids first. Um, how do we get in sync with our with our significant other? How do we stay in love? How do we keep the fire alive? Well, I want you to I want you to go with me on a metaphor for relationships that is about uh, you know our technology. We are really good today at keeping our technology in sync. Um, I was going through an airport yesterday and in and out of different locations, and uh, my Wi-Fi just kept looking for something to connect to. My Bluetooth headphones were in and out, on and off. But what's interesting is you get really good at staying connected. And But it takes a lot of attention. It takes a lot of focus. So I want to give you some tools that we could all be looking for when it comes to our relationships. Um, and hopefully they're going to, to help us all uh, be able to keep keep the connectivity up. Number one rule with your own marriage is count your bars of connectivity. So just like you might have with your uh, cell phone service or your Wi-Fi service, how many bars of coverage do you have? Are you, a, are you up to five full bars? Are you fully connected? Or are you and your partner down to four bars, three bars, two bars? Are you one and a half bars in? Where are you? Just take a take a little survey in your head. Where are you when it comes to being connected to your partner? Don't assume that the connection uh, means that your partner feels the same way about you, because they may not. But where would you say you are? And it might be a great question to ask your partner. On a scale from one to five, how connected do you feel to me today? And Let's just uh, let's address it as a couple and identify how how connected do we need to be? 
it might really be um, I have a daughter that's about to have twins. And, um, you know, twins, when they already have a toddler, is going to become pretty chaotic and hectic. So for the next few months, she and her husband probably ought to be as connected as they possibly can be. But they might need to go from five bars down to three bars for a few months after the babies are born, right? And they can get their life organized. But count the bars of connectivity and talk about it and what should your goal be. Another thing we could do is identify the interference. Sometimes when we're not getting the connectivity that we want, we, we need to notice why, what's going on. It's like when you're getting, you know, you're watching a show on your phone and you leave or, or your Wi-Fi goes down. You need to figure out what else is making the, the problem happen. What is it that's keeping you from being connected? What are, the, what are the intrusions that are happening? You might notice sometimes on your cell phone, if you go deeper into a building, you, you actually don't have the same um, connection. So sometimes are we too deep into certain things? Have we gotten too far away from the source that keeps us connected and, and relating to each other? So identify the things that are actually interfering with your connectivity. It could be hobbies. It could be technology. It could be jobs. It could be twins. It could be a lot of things. But notice the interference, because once you notice the interference, then you can start to to reprioritize, right, and put other people first in your life. It might be that, um, you know, your your spouse is having a family issue where she's spending a lot of time helping her parents do something because their health is failing. Whatever the interference is, just recognize, okay, then maybe the connectivity is not as bad. It's just, and this will all get better as soon as we can just handle this, this illness of our, of our in-laws or our parents. Third rule we can look at is we really need to make sure we know how to connect and get the tools that we need and, and get the power that we need to do that. So we need to invest in our connecting toolbox. People, uh, a lot of um, people nowadays are, are basically suggesting the, what they call the five hours a week rule. Michael Sim, uh, Simmons brought it up. He said they try to spend five hours a week reading, reflecting, and experimenting, gathering more tools, more information to deal with the interference in their lives. Uh, people like Oprah, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, they all are spending time learning. And nowadays, there's so many podcasts, there's shows like ours, there's all these different ways that we can go learn more and more skills and tools. And we always give you the, we always cite the references where we're getting this information so that you can go, you know, dig in deeper into these and dive deeper into the issues so you can learn, you can grow. Uh, So learn, 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 learn. There's no end to this. As somebody that spends literally all of my time focusing on learning these things even my hobby is my this is what we're talking about um i i'm constantly learning every time i go on a walk every time i get in my car it's a new podcast it's a new it's a new uh, learning experience ted.com lots of great tools another thing we need to make sure we do another rule for us is to turn up your receivers it's not enough to just expect someone to broadcast more strongly. You've got to be dialed in to pay attention. So you may be more likely to connect with somebody if you're actually knowing they're sending you the messages and you are tuning in. Just like those old-time radios that you had to dial them in and out and in and out. Same thing needs to happen, I think, to all of us where we need to turn up our receivers. We need to listen to more to what our partner is actually saying to us. 
We need to listen to actually be able to to show them that we're we're not just going to react to everything they're saying. We're going to actually pay attention. We're going to be engaged and actively becoming a partner in what you're saying. I'm going to listen so much that you're going to see movement out of me because I'm going to be moved by what you're saying. Many of us, we're so we can hear what you're saying. Don't our hearing is there, but we are not being affected in any way, shape, or form by what you're saying. You're, what you're saying is not moving me to be different, to change, or to grow. So let's start listening more and showing our partners we're listening. Let's also listen to our our friends and and be connected to them. Turn up the receivers, and you can start to practice it more. One way to do it is maintain more eye contact. When someone's talking to you, stop what you're doing and look at them. And it, it just changes the game um, when, when, you, when you're doing that. One of the things I've noticed when people come in my office and sit down with me, I give them so much more attention than I do the average person in my life. Uh, even on my radio show, I spend so much time searching for stuff even while everyone's talking to me that I know I'm not giving them the attention I need. But I'm like, I've got to get this information. I've got to find more information. So we need to learn with each other to literally put the phone down, turn to each other, and give each other more eye contact, more attention. Last rule is keep testing it until the connection is there. Usually when the process of understanding another person isn't a perfect science, it's simply a process of trial and error, right? We just, we just need to keep trying. If you want to increase your accuracy, you've got to increase your failures, more failures of us not being connected increases the likelihood that we can get connected if we're learning along the way. So just know we're going to have to keep testing. There's no end to this. Your commitment to your partner is a commitment that is basically saying, I am committed to keep trying to dial you in so we can stay in sync. And no, because these are moving targets, it's not always going to be one channel. It's going to be multiple channels multiple wavelengths, multiple uh, levels of this conversation. So powerful stuff. And uh, I, I think all of us would benefit by finally being a little bit more in sync with the people we love. It's, uh, it, it really does alleviate so many other problems in our life. We will continue the journey, folks. Up next, we're going to give you more ideas to create a better life. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. As we make it through this crazy life and world that is constantly in flux, in change, how do we learn to stay present in the now? How do we learn to actually be able to focus on what we're doing in the moment while still being able to you know, progress towards our future, manage the learning from our past? Well, uh, we, we interviewed Claire Diaz-Ortiz, who's the author of the book, The Better Life, and we talked to her a few months ago. We wanted to replay some of her interview um, just because we could gather so much insight, I feel, from from what she was teaching us. I began the interview by asking if it was true that at one time she was standing next to the Pope. In fact, in the moment that the Pope sent out his first public tweet. It was in December of 2012. Pope Benedict was the first Pope to ever tweet. And I spent about a year working with the Vatican to to try to make that happen. And it did. You? And yes, I am standing right there. What's it like when the Pope's like, you know on his cell phone 
tweeting. That's got to be pretty cool. It was a wild moment, and it, it was an iPad because I think yeah, oh yeah, uh, well, you know, a little, a little bit bigger for sure. Me. Yeah, eyes are um, going. But it was it was an incredible moment, and uh, I will always remember it. That's for sure. What an honor for you, especially. It sounds like it was something you've been working forward. You've been working for, and uh, finally it happened. So, so we really can make things happen in our lives. We really can. It's it's not always easy, and it's not always fast. But um, when we when we want something and we we work hard and we get some sort of luck on our side, then things things work. Yeah. Bada boom, bada bing is how I say that. Uh, yeah. Talk about your book for us. It really it's a great book. Just it's such a it's a kind of a concise, small uh, book, but it's got a lot of great solutions and ideas. How did you get into writing this book, The Better Life, Small Things You Can Do Right Where You Are? Sure. Well, quite honestly, you know, I, I didn't expect to write this this book. And what was happening was I was just, you know, I write on my blog regularly. It's a business blog. And I write kind of about things people can do to work better and be more productive and uh, live a life they, they want to live, live the life they want to live. And I wrote a couple sort of posts that I didn't think were that big of a deal. You know, there were just sort of these little posts about basically little things you could do in a day to make you feel a bit better and work a bit better. And they really, really resonated with readers. And it was sort of in the process of seeing that these sort of small tip posts were really resonating that we kind of thought, hey, why don't we, you know, pull these together and come up with a bunch more of these type of lessons and pull them into a little book? Because I think this is the type of thing that that people really can eat up. You know, we're all so busy every day that so much of what we want in terms of trying to figure out how to live better is is sort of lessons that are that are bite sized. Man, and it really is. We don't have time for the for sometimes even to read any book, let alone um, to to go and do make change in our lives. But to have a few of the ideas you bring up, for example, you you can teach us how to become a morning person. <laughs> how do you do that? Now, <laughs> it's a challenge, you know. And let me say that I'm not sure I am. I'm I'm not genetically a morning person. I'm not I either. Still don't get up at five a.m. by any means, like many folks out there. But what I do believe is that the morning is the time where most of us can do our best work. And so what I do and what I encourage other people to do is try to craft a morning that allows you to use those energetic hours to get your very best work done. Mm. And for me, a huge, huge part of that is creating a morning routine. And I think it was really when I created a morning routine that I really understood what it means to be a, you know, quote unquote morning person, even if you're not getting up at five. Yeah. I mean, if you can get up at whatever time you get up, for the lucky people that get up at 7, for example, because I get mm-hmm. to get up, not to brag, Claire, at 4.40 in the morning. That's my blessing. And um, I know, I know. I actually, it is 4.40 is the time. And uh, the entire, the minute that alarm goes off, I hate my life. And I, <laughs> I hate everything about it. And then once I get blood circulation and flow and I'm walking and, then it starts to get really great. But what I've noticed is at 10, when my show ends, um, I've put four hours in already and we've created some pretty cool stuff. And I feel really good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I got it done. And kind of what your book, a lot of what it seems like it's about is you don't need big things, just a little adjustment. You don't have to get up at 440. But just if you get up at 7 and you can go get a lot done and and, and have a really impactful two or three hour push when you've got a lot of creativity on board, it could make a huge difference. 
And, you know, what I think is so amazing is that I, I think, honestly, most of us, you know, those few hours in the morning are, are more effective than, you know, nine hours throughout the course of the day. Oh, yeah. People don't realize that. But when you really try to work hard in the morning hours, whatever time that starts, 4.40 or 7 a.m. or 8 a.m., uh, you realize, wow, I have energy. My mind is clear. I can do this now, and I can do it better than I could if I strung this out for 9 or 10 hours throughout the course of the day. Yeah. You, what is the – what's like – one of the first things I can do, what's the, is there a big, small thing I could do? I mean, get up early. That might be helpful and have a plan or a, or kind of a process you go through. What are some other things I could do really, you know, early in the day to have a big impact? So, you know, I've, I've got to say it again, but I really think a morning routine is essential. And I, for about four years now, have kept up the same morning routine. And, you know, a routine can be anything. Some people, when they think of a routine, it's, you know, get up, wash your face, get the coffee. When I say morning routine, I mean something really intentional that sets you up for the day. And so for me, that involves reading and journaling and doing a devotional and praying. And I really believe that this sort of 20-minute period that I take in a day is the smartest Mm. thing I do all day. And, you know, it's hard, let me tell you. It can be hard because sometimes I can wake up, and as you're saying, you get the blood flowing, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got the iPhone next to you, you want to pull it out, you Uh want to start reading emails, you want to jump into the fray. And it's hard to say, hey, I'm going to take 20 minutes for myself to read on, you know, paper uh-huh. and think and journal and pray. And that's, it's not always what you want to do. Um, but I, I believe it's basically the smartest thing you can do all day to set yourself up for not only productivity, but also just happiness and peace. And you've, you've obtained the victory. Stephen Covey used to say, obtain a victory early. Because if, if you can have a victory and that, that would be kind of a physical victory, a mental victory, a spiritual victory early, then it, it does set up. It's easier to take the next victory and to have the next victory because it's kind of like if you exercise early in the morning or Absolutely. it's easier to eat healthier throughout the day. You've already, you know, you've already burnt 500 calories or whatever. Just don't blow it now. No, no, it's absolutely true. It's this amazing domino effect. And, you know, exercising in the morning is another amazing thing you can do for not only feeling better, but just having positive energy throughout the day. What, um, about, yeah. what about just being present? I mean, I know that's a big part of this. And your book, I mean, a lot of stuff, it's kind of your book is, is titled Small, The Better Life, The Small Things You Can Do Right Where You Are. Most of us aren't even where we are in our head. You know what I mean? We're not even present in our lives. Isn't that the truth? Oh. I mean, it is unbelievable how unpresent we are, how absent. I mean, you're driving really a car and you're not even there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm aware. My, I have a 15-month-old daughter, and she's just literally turned the switch where she understands what an iPad is and oh, understands boy. how great it is. Yeah. And it wasn't like this. She literally didn't care, and now all of a sudden she cares, and it's just given me such incredible insight into things that I've written about and talked about for years, this idea of, you know, getting offline, understanding your digital life and trying to, you know, disconnect from it so that you can live in the present. But just seeing her at this very young age, all of a sudden get, get into this mess. I'm just amazed by, by, you know, she's feeling that way. She wants the iPad because she sees her parents doing it. She totally. sees that on our, on our iPhones way too much. And it's just really, really important to be mindful about technology use. I mean, so one of the things that I've, I've done, and I think it's been about three or four years now, and I just swear by it, is, is this idea of taking a digital Sabbath. So 
taking a day where you really disconnect from devices. Mm. Um, and so I do that at least one day a week. It's usually on Sunday. Um, and then if I'm really lucky, I do two days of just being off the computer entirely on the weekend. And I think I it's just that. a really important thing to kind of refocus you. And it also, you know, energizes you because truth be told, if, if you like what you do in life as your job, um, you will be more excited to do it on a Monday if you, if mm-hmm. you really take some time away from it. Oh, I love that. And and it really is it's cuz it's it's a sacrifice but then it's it's actually additive. It's something that's going to make you better. And and actually probably more attuned. Right? You could actually offer it like a sabbath. You so it sounds like you offer it almost as an offering like uh to to your to your belief system. You're saying mm-hmm. I'm going to give this to God. I'm I'm not going to mm-hmm. go there. And then it's a spiritual mm-hmm. event. Absolutely. And it I makes it that. so much easier to have a spiritual day as well uh-huh. when you're not scrolling through Instagram and Twitter all day. And if, you know, I assume if mom's doing it, it's easier for the daughter to do it and everyone else to do it in the family. Absolutely. And I mean, vice versa. You know, I, I'm doing it for everyone in a way because it's modeling behavior that I, I want to extend to others. Oh, see, and look at that. I Right when you said that fast or that Sabbath idea, I thought, oh, man, my kids would die. But mm-hmm. honestly, Good. <laughs> I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. the sacrifice would make them better, and they, they, we actually mm-hmm. know that. We have a a sports uh, a sports person on our show regularly uh, from BYU Sports Nation, and he talked about how he lost his phone, and for about three or four days he didn't have a phone. He was on a trip, mm-hmm. didn't have a phone, and he said it was the best thing for their marriage. They changed. Mm-hmm. They they had they finally had time to be together. It's cool. Well, you know, that brings up the other sort of big issue here, which is, you know, this idea of vacations when we do sort of disconnect and try to be with family, we're, we're not there at all because of this technology. And that's, uh, we see that in small doses in our daily lives, you know, not turning off the phone at 8 p.m. or at 7 p.m. or whatever you, you think it's family time. But when you go on vacation, and here we are, you know, in the midst of the summer in the U.S., when you go really on a vacation and still take all your devices with you and still stay as connected as ever, it's just, it's just such a waste. That was Claire Diaz-Ortiz, again, talking to us about uh, the better life. And that better life might come by just putting your phone down, for heaven's sakes. Another great way to find the better life is to stick with BYU Broadcasting, because Jeff Simpson is back, along with his uh, incredible show, Screen Cleaning. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm signing off for now, turning the reins over to Jeffrey. But uh, make it a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again Monday. Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here by uh, Cole Wissinger. And boy, oh boy, have we got an amazing show for you here today. Here on Screen Cleaning, we try to give you only the very best in entertainment. And we're going to do it once again today. And today it's a, a fascinating topic. We're actually going to be talking about do older TV shows hold up? You know, there are just so, there's so much content on TV, on these streaming devices now, that it can be difficult to try to figure out what shows deserve my time. And And it can be said that the shows that we're getting each week and each year now in our modern golden age of television are better than what has come out before. Could be. So we want to pair them head to head. Yes, exactly. And, you know, a lot of these shows that we have today, if we're honest would not exist without some of these older shows. Oh, absolutely. So, 
when you're strolling, when you're flipping through Netflix and you see things like Cheers and and uh, Frasier and all these shows that are decades old, do they hold up? Meaning, and I want to I want to give you an idea of what I mean by do they hold up? Would you put these old shows in your queue to watch today? Would you watch them today? Another question you could ask to see if it still holds up, and this is the criteria that we will be using when we talk about our shows today. Would I watch the entire series? Hmm. Would I stick it out to the end? And uh, it we'll we'll find out. We've got we each have five shows that we're going to be talking about in five different categories. And I've got to say, I'm going to give a little tease. They do not all hold up for me. But they also all don't. There's some there's some gems in the previous generations of television. That's true. And we'll get to those. But uh, first, we're going to go in alphabetical order here. So our first category is actually going to be animation. So, I mean that that theme could really be played when what how you just did when we talk about animation because when we think of animation it's hard to ignore the amazing presence of Looney Tunes. And really a lot again, back to that comment I made earlier, we probably wouldn't have some of these shows today if it were not for Looney Tunes, right? Yes, it blazed the trail in front of them. So I was responsible for uh, designating uh, this show as to whether or not it still holds up. I watched a few episodes of it, what I could find online anyway, and it is still funny. After all these years, it is still funny. There were several moments that I laughed out loud. And, you know, we were talking about this during the break. You're going to mention it maybe on on the show that you're talking about. But it had some really edgy material back in the day. Not all just for kids. Animation can be viewed by all. Exactly. You had them uh, spoofing Hitler, which Daffy Duck going up against Hitler. Just, Just Google that. It's so funny. And hearing Mel Blanc... Just butcher the German language by pretending to be a German officer is – that's one of the moments that just made me laugh out loud. Funny and insensitive accents are yes. a staple of old comedy. Yes, just like <laughs> Spike Jones. Spike Jones would have done the same thing. And speaking of Mel Blanc, Mel Blanc, in my opinion, is still the king of voiceover. Even though he's no longer living, he is an amazing voice talent and just a – he's so funny. So funny. Um, When I watched this, I hopped online and I reserved Looney Tunes from the library, and I cannot wait to watch it with my kids because I can just picture my kids loving this show. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this show, after all these years, still holds up. Now, I will mention that there's an asterisk next to that still holds up rating, and The only reason for that is if I'm honest with myself, and we're going to be totally honest this show, Cole. I'll try. Okay. If we're honest with ourselves or if I'm honest with myself, I don't know that I would sit down and watch this show straight through by myself. I might have it on in the background if I'm editing my voiceovers, but I definitely would watch it with my children. 
that's what I plan on doing. And so it still holds up after all these years. I think I might have already watched all of the Looney Tunes at this really? point in my life, right? I, this, was a very, this was very much a staple in my house whenever I was growing up. And if Looney Tunes was not a thing, your show would not exist. Very true. And so I would like to tell you about all the reasons why... The Animaniacs holds up. <laughs> okay. Great theme song, by the way. And they had a theme song that would change sometimes from episode to episode. They have a version that talks about Bill Clinton playing the sax. It was very much a product <laughs> of the 90s, and as am I. So when I look at Animaniacs and ask myself, does it hold up? It has to meet two criteria. Um, as, an, as most animation, I think, has to. I have to be an adult that would be willing to watch this show that is geared for kids. So True. it has to hold up just in general to adult viewing. And then it has to hold up through the generations of time. This is a show that I watched when I was a small child and I loved. And so I need to take off the rose-colored nostalgic glasses and see if I still enjoy it. And And I do. Very much to both counts. I can't always say – and so Animaniacs has a very unique concept in that they spoof deliberately some very adult things – that you don't get when you're when I was a five year old watching in the nineties, I had no idea that Good Feathers was an exact <laughs> shot for shot parody of Good Fellas. Wow! Because a five year old shouldn't be watching Good Fellas, shouldn't be getting those jokes. But you can still sit down and enjoy it when you were a kid, and then you can enjoy it even more and get what they're trying to get at when you go back in as adult. Interesting. Favorite Animaniacs characters? Slappy the Squirrel is, ah. again, as an adult now, you get to see all the old Hollywood kind of things and jibes that she was putting in. And when I was a little kid, I related a lot with her little nephew, grandson, whatever, the, the tiny little cute peppy squirrel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and now as a little bit more of a an adult person, I... I sympathize with the grumpy old kind of curmudgeon. Yeah. Slappy. <laughs> um, wow. You know, I, I don't know that I could just name one favorite Looney Tunes character, but I will say when Elmer Fudd was singing a song in the episode that I was watching, he's probably the character on Looney Tunes that can have me in stitches just by listening to his voice. <laughs> he has that funny of a voice. So my aunt's favorite Looney Tune character, and she loved Looney Tunes, and she's much of the reason why I enjoy this kind of area of comedy. Um, she loved Sylvester. I'm a big Wiley Coyote fan. Those were always my favorite growing you up. You mentioned Mel Blanc, and I don't want to get off Animaniacs until I tell you why Rob Paulson, if if Mel Blanc isn't the greatest voiceover man ever, Rob Paulson is and all the work wow. that he's done. Wow. Um, all the songs that they incorporate into Animaniacs used his voice extremely well, and I think he's fantastic. I'm going to have to go give it another look. Mm-hmm. All right. So on to our next category. We've got our detective slash police show category. Now, this sounds like a video game, but it's actually a theme composed by Danny Elfman. There you go. Can you believe it? Of Batman fame and a couple other movie scores that we enjoy. So this is a show that you're probably not familiar with from the 80s called Sledgehammer. 
with an exclamation point, I might add. If it was the 80s and you put an exclamation mark at the end of your TV slash movie. Or if it's a comedy. You were doing pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is a show that really spoofs police dramas and more specifically, Dirty Harry. You have this character whose name is Sledgehammer. And he is very much – his gun is very much a part of his life. It's very much the love of his life. They make a point of showing you that he talks to his gun and it lays on a pillow at night. And it is very much a spoof in the vein of Police Squad or if you were to use a modern example, Angie Tribeca. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the better gags, I will say – are borrowed from other spoofs. Like the times that I laughed the most, I realized, wait a minute, that's from such and such a movie. They did that gag, but a little better in that other show. Um, It is a little dated. My biggest beef with it, though, is that it doesn't take itself seriously enough. Now, I know that sounds like a ridiculous statement to make. For a comedy. Because it is a comedy, but more specifically, it's a spoof. And... In order to get spoof perfectly, in order to nail spoof, you've got to do what they did in the movie Airplane. You've got to take serious, dramatic actors, which apparently the actor in this show who plays Sledgehammer was known for being a dramatic actor. And you've got to have them say the most ridiculous lines with an absolutely straight face. You can't have them deliver the lines in a silly manner. They have to deliver them as if... They are in a drama. So this show doesn't always do that very well. Um, But if you're looking for something that's just a fun romp that is good to have on in the background, you you could do worse. However, it is not as good as the other two spoof cop shows that I mentioned, which in my opinion are superior. If you want a more recent example, take a look at Angie Tribeca on TBS – Or, if you want an even better example, check out Police Squad. This show was way ahead of its time. It only had six episodes air, but it did spawn three movies starring Leslie Nielsen, Academy Award winner George Kennedy, and acquitted murderer... (laughs) Not yet. O.J. Simpson. Alleged alleged murderer. Right. And at the time of the movies, he was just star Buffalo Bills running back, O.J. Simpson. (laughs) Right. So again, look for one of those instead of Sledgehammer. I'm going to say that Sledgehammer does not still hold up. But again, when I'm at home editing, I'll have it on in the background, but mostly because I spent $2 to rent it from the library. I love that you brought up the commitment that the actors have to take to spoofs. Um, We aren't talking about movie reviews today, but there are a few movies that are coming out, one of them being Rampage, uh, the next Dwayne The Rock Johnson kind of thing. And one of the reviews that I read... I. I admit we're not talking about it because I don't think either one of us has seen it. Um, nope. But one of the reviews that I read is that, sure, this is kind of a dumb movie, but you can't blame The Rock for not committing to it. Which is what you have to do when you have a ridiculous concept, right. like a giant CGI gorilla fighting a giant CGI crocodile, and you just have The Rock around as well. The reviews that I've seen say, yeah, sure, it's dumb, but 
The Rock takes it seriously, and that's how you can get some enjoyment right. out of it. And that's not to say that all comedy should just be straight like that. Oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. There's room take for somebody, silliness. Yeah, take somebody like Chris Farley. One of the reasons <laughs> Chris Farley was so funny is because of the commitment. Just like you mentioned, he threw his all into it. Okay, so Cole, what show are you going to be talking about? Well, I think you might just recognize it from the theme. Or at least the decade that it comes from, right? So, Cole, <laughs> not to offend you in any way, and this isn't your fault, not by a long shot. I'll take blame but, anyway. But of all the themes that we're going to be playing, I think this is the worst. <laughs> it's really bad. Well, just like the TV show itself, the fashion, <laughs> the cars, and everything else that comes from it, Miami Vice is unapologetically mid-1980s. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that I picked this show and one of the reasons that I picked it um, out of all of the police and and procedurals that are around and at our disposal for this category is that I looked up Sledgehammer and one of their kind of meta jokes that they used mm-hmm. was at one point they were going somewhere and he said, man, it's tough to be stuck between Miami and Dallas because mm. when Sledgehammer premiered, it was on Friday nights going opposite Miami Vice and Dallas to establish top 10 Zing. syndicated nice. shows. Um, Miami Vice didn't wasn't able to compete with Dallas either. I mean, if I called my mom and asked her to tell me anything about this show, she would say, oh, that was the thing that I was watching Dallas instead of. <laughs> yeah. The sports coats with like the solid colored shirts underneath with oh, the sleeves rolled up. Oh, white sports coat. Yeah, there Sleeves you go. rolled up, pink shirt underneath, <laughs> Ray-Ban sunglasses, <laughs> Everything about this show established just a certain aesthetic of the mid-1980s that I don't know – I don't know if it ever actually existed. I, I can't say. I was not there. Um, but it certainly gives you that feel that that's what the mid-1980s was. And and so it dove into it headfirst. And what I can say for this show is that it was very modern at the time. And I think this is a word of warning to people that are producing or developing television shows or movies that want to make them very now, want to make them very, you know, current and things like that, that if you do that, yep, they might tend to look ridiculous when viewed in hindsight. Okay. So are you saying that this is a film or a show that holds up or does not hold up? Oh, it very much does not. Okay. It, and more so than any other TV show that I watched this week, Miami Vice doesn't hold water whatsoever. I can see that. Well, we still have quite a few shows to get through and and deciding whether or not these older TV shows still hold up. We're doing you a service, really, because there's so much to watch. You you need to really filter through all of the uh, not I don't want to say garbage, but the stuff that's a little uh, well, let's just say expired. You open the right. fridge, the milk is past its date. It's time to throw it Something out. Something smells. Right? Put in some uh, some Arm and Hammer, right? right. <laughs> and yes. uh, you got it. <laughs> When when we return, we're going to go on to our next two categories, drama and the sitcom. When we return here on Screen Cleaning. Things just got intense here on Screen Cleaning. You might could say dramatic. Whoa. Cole, do you recognize that theme? Oh, not one bit. Okay. (laughs) Well, I am happy to introduce you to a little show called The Fugitive. 
Okay, I've heard of that. I think it was a movie, right? Now, <laughs> I had high hopes going into the show. And let me tell you why. It won the Emmy for Outstanding Dramatic Series in 1966. In 2002, it was ranked number 36 on TV Guide's 50th or 50 greatest TV shows of all time. So someone thinks it holds up. Now, this is 2002. There's been a lot of great TV that has come out in the last 16 years. But let's let's just say that my expectations were high for this. And not to mention the fact that the uh, the film that shares the name The Fugitive is one of my favorite movies, one of my wife's favorite movies. Anytime The Fugitive, the movie, is on TV, we will sit down and watch it regardless of the fact— <laughs> Yeah, regardless of the fact— that uh, we own the movie on DVD. We could just plop in the DVD and watch it in less time. Right. But, you know, that takes too much work. And it was serendipity. It was meant to be, if you saw it on TV, that you That's had to stop true. and watch it. Yeah, exactly. Especially since we don't really have cable anymore. <laughs> um, let me give you the premise. The premise is the same as the film in that you have this doctor, Dr. Richard Kimball, who is convicted of murdering his wife. However, he's innocent. And as he's being transported on a train uh, to be uh, given lethal injection or to be put to death, the train crashes and he escapes. (gasps) There is a police detective that is after him, Sam Gerard, the same as in the movie. And as also in the movie, he... Never, or he, he uh, to his dying day, or almost to his dying day, he purported that a one-armed man was the real killer of his wife. So in this show, he'll be looking for the one-armed man. Meanwhile, he'll be going from town to town, changing his identity, changing his appearance, although in the few episodes that I've seen, he actually looked pretty much the same. But this show, considering it came, came on uh, back in the 60s, the acting is quite good. If you watch old shows like The Twilight Zone, well, that's not the best example, but a lot of older shows like that that they are can be dramas, mm-hmm. yeah, they can be stiff or they can just they can be over actors that are in these shows, but the acting is quite good. Not only that, the writing is quite good. It was gutsy. Let's just say it was gutsy to go from the first episode where you had this police detective chasing him to going to the second episode, they're settled in a little more, no police detective, and it's about a little girl who is practicing witchcraft on this little doll that she has. What? It's a natural transition. What? And it works for some reason. Um, But again, I, I just love the movie, and so I had to give this a chance, so much so that I had to buy it on DVD because there was no other way for me to watch this. You can't stream it. You can't check it out from your library. You could download it illegally, but I would never suggest that. So I bought it online, and I knew I was I was uh, purchasing with a, a good guarantee that I would re- get my money returned if I wanted to sell it later because you look at what people are selling it for, and it's not cheap, folks. Let's just say that. So it's a TV show that other people apparently are— People love it. They demand it. Did you? I need to know. Here's the verdict on this one. The verdict on this one, on whether or not this TV show still holds up after all these years, the verdict is still out, folks. 
I didn't know that was an option. I got a text approximately 15 <laughs> minutes before the show started with Jeff saying, "There's, I'm going to have one of three options here. It either does, doesn't, or maybe. Now, let me explain myself. <laughs> this show, the movie is what, two hours long? This show yeah. lasted four seasons, 120 episodes. So I, I need to give it a little more time. Okay, And I think that's fair because it's not going to be the same gripping type of drama that you would get with like a 24 or a Breaking Bad. Um, However, because of the acting and because of the writing, I'm willing to give it a chance and keep watching it because I'm just fascinated by it. It's so different and unique that I I can't dismiss it. And yet I'm not sure yet if it will hold my attention for 120 episodes. So the verdict is still out on The Fugitive. Very fitting because The Fugitive, you know, he's still on the loose anyway. (laughs) So this is the category that I think we're going to – this is why we're doing this show, I think, because it is in drama more so than other genres that television has made leaps and bounds recently in turning to just giant movie-style extended arcs, that sort of thing. Um and so we attacked two shows that were from the 1960s, which mm-hmm. is bold of us to see if they can still stand the test of time. Uh, and mine, I think, is a little bit more recognizable by theme only than The Fugitive. And also because there happened to be some recent movies. Cole, this is the song that goes through my head every time I put my son down and I try to sneak down the hall without waking him up. And I'm scaling the walls... Yeah. Mission Impossible. Yes. So as yours, your 60s television show kind of followed the same plot as the 90s movie. Yeah. Mine, not so much. Yeah. So the Mission Impossible TV show is more based on the cast of characters, whereas Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt in the movies kind of goes off script with IMF and he's kind of finding the moles in the organization. The Mission Impossible TV show had a very steady and solid format. Every episode, you knew what you were going to get. Was um, Peter Graves on this show? Yes. The guy was. from For a one of those bit. unsolved mystery shows, I think this is the show he was on. He was the first lead, and then he was kind of canned after a season or two. Well, that's um, a shame. I saw one episode with him, and I kind of jumped around in this. Again, with old dramas, it's not necessarily Breaking Bad-esque, where you have to start at the beginning sure. and progress your way through. Yeah. It is much more episodic in its episodes yeah yeah this does not hold up for me (gasps) i am sad to say just because out of a drama i am now conditioned to expect more i need at very least a seasonal arc and and as i saw these characters kind of interact with each other it made me think of better things that i watch nowadays there's there's a not very great show on tnt called leverage that does Almost exactly what this Mission Impossible does, only with better dialogue and with a season-long arc that kind of ties the missions together. And in a funnier kind of way as well, whereas this is just very stiff, like we talked about old-school Hollywood acting, uh, a formulaic thing. I mean, sure, it's given us a lot of these tropes, like the tape exploding in five seconds, or your mission should you choose to accept it, or that wonderful theme song. But those elements on their own do not come together for me. To make a good enough television show to watch in 2018. Now, to be fair, I couldn't help but thinking while I was watching some of these shows, if I were a child or if I were an adult back when these shows originally aired, 
would I have enjoyed would I have enjoyed them? Do you think you would have enjoyed this back then? Oh, absolutely. If it's yeah. not if it's not fighting for my attention with a lot of other things that have right. longer arcs and and more engaging, there are just so many more options today. It's true. And and they can take more liberties because they can they can afford to be a prestige show. They can wait 2 years in between each season. They can, you know, they can get a guaranteed 10 episodes, right? So they can start and finish their story. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of these other shows, you started it without the end in mind and uh yeah, you meandered till you got there. Right. And that's going to be a theme in our next category, I'm thinking, at least for my show. Oh, and mine has a little bit of the opposite end of it. So. Yes. So the next category is the sitcom. And you'll probably – this is another one of the shows that is very recognizable by the theme. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes. My cycle hums. Ready to race to you. Great theme. You can't argue that. It's a great theme. Absolutely. Um, but again, I'm convinced this is a show that started without the end in mind. It lasted 11 seasons. Well, it didn't even know which characters it wanted to feature or which characters would end up being popular. And we'll get to that. 11 seasons. And to be fair, since this show changed so drastically throughout its 11-season run, I wanted to get a little taste of... A little bit of kind of the evolution of Happy Days, right? Yeah. So I watched sport attempt. I watched the pilot. The pilot is less focused on uh, catchphrases and comic relief, and it focuses just on a story that uh, I think a lot of teenagers back in those days and today, minus the smartphones, would appreciate trying to. Trying to know how to talk to a girl that you're attracted to. And so that was just a nice, interesting pilot. The pilots are always the roughest part of any show. Many shows do not nail down the pilot very well. Uh, Then I watched an episode where the shift changed from the Ron Howard character and more toward the uh, Fonzie character, played by Henry Winkler. Thank you for putting that in there. Speaking of catchphrases... And uh, it was a completely different show. So going from season one to season three, a completely different show. And they did that. They changed the shift because uh, their ratings were not so good in the first couple of seasons. So once they started focusing more on Fonzie, things really took off from there. And then I wanted to get a taste of when the show kind of ventured off into the really bizarre territory and I, I mentioned the example I'm going to mention is the character of Robin Williams as Mork, an alien from the planet Ork. So all of a sudden you've got aliens on Happy Days. That is quite the evolution, folks. Now, even though on the show they pretended as if it was a dream, in a later episode you see, or later on in that episode, you see Robin Williams as Mork saying that he tricked them into thinking that it was all just a dream. So, it's the kind of messy continuity that we just don't get nowadays. Yes, there were aliens on Happy Days. Now listen to this. Aside from the 11 seasons, this show spawned five spinoffs. Laverne and Shirley. Yep. Mork and Mindy, yep. starring Robin Williams. Joni Loves Chachi. Yep. So those are the three that I knew. There were two more, okay. Out of the Blue okay. and Blansky's Beauties, which apparently featured Pat Morita's character in it. <laughs> 
Uh, there were also two spinoffs that were not picked up, The Ralph and Potsy Show and The Pinky Tuscadero Show. Of course, from everyone's favorite, seventh favorite character from Happy Days. Right. So this is also another, you don't see this as much today, but back then they would just milk these entities for all they were worth. Eleven seasons were not enough. You had to do seven other shows based or that were rooted in this Happy Days uh, universe. For me, it's a little too gimmicky, probably focused a little too heavy on uh, catchphrases and comic relief. I am going to say, and I'm going to upset quite a few people, and that probably me. Happy Days does not still hold up. Aww. And uh, I'm going to reference this show in our next block when we talk about our next category. But for me, Happy Days, I, I had to be honest, don't get me wrong. It's charming. It has some really fun characters, some fun dialogue, and some fun situations that they get themselves into. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm just not going to go back and watch it. I'm just not going to do it. Sorry, Cole. That's okay. And 11 seasons is a lot. When you when you set the requirement as I would want to go back and watch all of them, it's tough for that. And it's easier for the show that I picked for my sitcom, which is Arrested Development, also featuring Ron Howard and Henry Winkler and Scott Bayo and others. From this Happy is Days. I just want to <laughs> say that this is so not fair that you get to talk about this one, but I'm I'm going to let you do you it. You can anyway. chime in. I <laughs> get to talk about it, honestly, because I'm late to the party. Um, our goal and to give you a peek behind the curtain as Jeff and I were deciding what to talk about on this show and how to frame it. We tried to attack shows that we had not seen before. Now, I revisited Animaniacs, but it had been a solid sure. 15 or 20, well, 15 years in between the last time I saw it and my more recent love and, and rekindle of that love for the show. Yeah. So by saying this, I am admitting that I had never really gotten into Arrested Development before this week. And boy, did I get into it this week. Um, I, I tell you, I, so Netflix keeps track of where you're at in shows. And this week, before we even decided we were doing a TV show, I started watching it. And I was on episode five because I'd tried two or three times before to, to get it. And I just didn't get it. Okay. And I finally got it. Um, right around episode five, I watched it and I just kept going through. And right now I'm about halfway through season two. So I didn't take this smorgasbord, you know, take some episodes from each season. Sure. Because I, I want to keep watching it. I was so excited by this show and I will intend to watch all of the episodes that are at my disposal that I didn't want to ruin the experience just to get a taste from what would come later. So I need to hear a little bit from you what happens in season four when they come back. Okay. I will say, don't. I hope your expectations for season four are not too high. Okay. Um, and also, we've been playing all the themes of these shows. This is one of the better themes that we have for you here today. Um, it's You hear it. You're not going to forget it. And it's just a fun little ukulele rift. And it's really just a, a riff. I guess it's a riff, not a rift. And... Uh, of all these shows that we're going to talk about today, Cole, or that we have talked about, this is the one that I think will hold up better than any of them. I think in 10, 20, 30 years, I could still watch this and still have belly laughs rolling on the floor. It is that funny. And it's not to say that it's not a sign of the, uh, a product of its times either. It's a very post 9-11-y in its oh, yeah. plot-driven kind of things, the, the whole kind of driving concept of the first couple seasons is that they're in the house making business and they kind of had some shady dealings over in Iraq. And there's a lot of humor that comes from 
kind of needing to know some of the political atmosphere in America in 2002, three and four when it was coming out uh, that that might get lost to the times if, you, if you're afraid of that. Sure. But we're still close enough to it that it has held up marvelously. Right. And I'm going to upset Cole with this comment as we go to commercial. But behind or this is my second favorite sitcom behind Seinfeld. Boo. <laughs> but it, you have a good second favorite choice, at least, Jeff. When we return, we're going to give you our last category and tell you whether or not the TV shows in the spinoff category still hold up after all these years. This is Screen Cleaning. Of all the shows that we're talking about here on Screen Cleaning today, I'm going to say that this is and the I most. Will agree. This is the most comforting theme song of all of these shows. You just feel good listening to this song. Not to say that uh, you know you need to go to a bar and forget about your troubles to feel good about yourself, but sometimes you really want to go someplace. Where everybody knows your name, where everybody Norm. where everybody loves you, where you're embraced, where you're appreciated. And we're going to be talking, of course, about the show Cheers. Now, interesting that this is in our spin-off category. I felt a little bad about this because Happy Days would have been a more fitting uh, selection for spinoff because but of all the spinoffs of it. If you chose Happy Days, that means I would have had to watch either Mark and Mindy or Laverne and Shirley. That's or true. Or Loves Chachi. An interesting fact about Happy Days, Happy Days was itself a spinoff of another show. Can you believe mm-hmm. that? There was an anthology show. Uh, I can't remember what I think it's America. Uh, I, I can't remember it, but... I should have written that down. Bringing up the trivia he doesn't know the answer to. That's my Jeff. It was an anthology series that ran for about five series or five seasons, and they pulled this Happy Days-esque segment from it. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, the film American Graffiti is very much like Happy Days as well. And George Lucas saw uh, this this original pilot, loved it, and decided to put Ron Howard in the movie American Graffiti. So everything is kind of interwoven. Oh, and if we're going back to a little bit of Happy Days and Arrested Development, many people think that Happy Days took a downturn when it jumped the shark. It yes. had uh, Fonzie jumping over a shark. And there was a scene in Arrested Development where Henry Winkler's character uh, jumps over a shark. Classic. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up, by the way. Also, like Happy Days, 11 seasons, it introduced us to America's sweetheart, Woody Harrelson. Uh, And like I said, it's just comforting. I I watched a few episodes of it, tried to get a good sense of how the story morphed over the years. Did not have the type of evolution that Happy Days did. It was more consistent. I just tried to get a sense for all the different characters that were introduced, like Woody Harrelson and Kirstie Alley. And uh, it's a show that has characters you really care about. And... Portrayed by very likable actors, Ted Danson, Shelley Long, two of the most likable actors that you can name right there. One of the best will they won't lays. And I mean, exactly. that's strong for sitcoms, right? The writing is quite good. The jokes are very funny. And again, you don't get much better than the theme song to Cheers. I'm going to say that Cheers, after all these years, 
still holds up. I'm looking forward to going back and discovering it for the first time and watching it, hopefully, in its entirety on Netflix. So you had never really dove into Cheers before this nope. week, correct? Nope. Correct. I have. I uh-huh. love Cheers. Yeah. Um, but I had never dove into its main spinoff, Frasier, before. Mm. But you have, correct? I have not, actually. Oh. So I, I have seen several. I've se- I had seen more Frasier than I had Cheers. I will go. say that. Okay. I had seen zero Frasier up until this week. And so I got it with entirely fresh eyes. And I started with the episode of Cheers that I watch anyway. Um, but I started with the episode where Frasier gets introduced. I went back and rewatched that one. Yes. And then kind of watched a little bit of, of his introduction as, as a psychologist and as a therapist kind of thing. Um, and his evolution to going back to Seattle after his breakup with his wife, spinning off into Frasier, taking on a very Matt Townsend role for Seattle Radio, where he is a, a doctor that talks through people's problems sometimes on the radio. And also 11 seasons. Also 11 seasons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Frasier, for me, was a little... Frasier was one of my least favorite characters in Cheers. He belonged there Mm. because it, it was nice to have this kind of different intellectual upper snobby kind of guy that Ted Danson could poke fun at. Sure. But as soon as you make Frasier his own guy... And it's up to kind of his dad and their live-in nurse to be the ones to make fun of him, but but he's the one driving the show. I think it loses a little bit of that. Okay. And as, as a poor working-class man that I am anyway, and as, <laughs> as opposed to a guy that wants a grand piano in his loft apartment in Seattle, um, I didn't. I was not as enamored by Frasier, and I do not think that it holds up as well as Cheers. Wow. Okay. Interesting. You know. It's so funny because if you look at um, Kelsey Grammer Mm -hmm. and his brother on Frasier. They are shockingly similar. They look like they are brothers in real life. And it was fun to, again, go back and watch the episode of Cheers when Frasier's introduced because there's there's kind of a joke. There's also an episode where Ten Danson comes on uh, to Frasier after a while and Mm -hmm. plays his same character. Um, And he makes the comment, hey, your brother, you know, I remember when you used to look like this. Ha ha, he gained some weight. But like... When you go back and see that episode of Cheers, Kelsey Grammer does look a lot like yes, he does the guy that plays his David <sighs> Price Pier- uh, Hyde Pierce. David uh, Hyde. Yeah. It's three names. <laughs> yes. It's it's not David Hyde Pierce. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Even when he's young, yeah, when he's younger, he looks even more like him. Uh-huh. It's crazy. Okay, so Cheers holds up. Frasier. Does not. not so much. So sorry. But as we go to commercial, Frasier, your consolation prize is this this fun little theme song that you put together for us. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. That's coming up next on Screen Cleaning. But I don't know what to do with those tossed salads and scrambled eggs. Screen cleaning. It's part of our, uh, it's the favorite part of the show, really, when we go over to BYU Sports Nation to talk to our good friends over there, Spencer and Jerem today. How are you? Good. Up, Field of Dreams, huh? Field of Dreams. Oh, you saw the email. Field of Dreams actually did not win. What? Field of Dreams was Peter Brown's guess. Oh. Peter Brown is the winning employee here at BYU Broadcasting. Okay. Rocky won. Rocky 1 is the greatest sports movie of all Rocky time. Rocky 1 won. This year. Now, 
in the sports bracket that you had with March Madness, it's always a different team, right? There are different variations that go on each year. That's not to say that Rocky would win again next year. Yeah, opinions vary from year to year. Exactly. And so, do yeah, like there are plenty of movies we didn't put in the bracket. So there's always next year is what I'm saying. There's Can't al- wait. Which is interesting. That's cause a in, classic tale around these parts, Jeff. Because in, in Rocky, the first Rocky, spoiler alert, Rocky actually does not win. Uh, what? But he won your heart. <laughs> That's true. And then real quick, a little, uh, I want to see how well you know your Rockies. Rocky two, does he win or lose? Rocky two. I don't remember. I'm assuming he wins. Okay, that's right. Rocky three. Does he win? No. Rocky three. He, well, he loses and wins. That's right. Rocky four. He wins. Rocky five. This one's Rocky. a little trickier. Does he, does he beat Tommy Morrison? Yes. <laughs> but it's a street fight. <laughs> yes. Rocky Balboa. Everyone wins in a street fight because there are great stories with the crew. What about Rocky Balboa? Haven't seen it. Oh. I haven't seen it either. Is that where it's How like the dare video you. game thing? Yeah, the video game simulation that if he were paired up against today's boxers, he could win. And then there's Creed. But he Creed. doesn't fight in Creed. Yeah. He fights cancer he in Creed. A, he coaches a winner. He fights cancer. Anyway, so that's that's uh Rocky won the sports movie bracket. Now uh, another thing that we talked about on our show today, and I need your opinion real quick on these. We've been talking about the discussion was, do older TV shows still hold up? And we highlighted several examples. And I need your opinion on just a few of these. And what I mean by do they still hold up, would you would you still watch them today? Are they in your queue? Okay. Would you Would you watch the entire series? Okay. Would you sit down and watch them, or would you watch them more casually? So we had shows like Happy Days. Does Happy Days still hold up, do you think? No. That's what I said. Uh, we have a show called Cheers. Yeah, I, yeah, I, w- it's, I well, will. I like going where everybody knows my name. That's true. I would occasionally watch Cheers, yeah. I okay. Uh, how about Looney Tunes and or Animaniacs? Animaniacs I would uh, casually observe at least once. Okay. Both of those, yes. I, and my favorite cartoons growing up were Looney Tunes based. Yeah, like Wiley Tiny Coyote, Toon Adventures, Roadrunner. Like I thought those were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think you guys were right on with Cole and me, pretty much. Now that we've got that settled, uh, now that we have that validation out of the way, thank you. <laughs> okay. uh, what is coming up on your show today? Well. If you missed the interview with Dave Rose yesterday. A two-segment interview. We don't do that often, if ever. It was loaded. I mean, he talked about the current state of BYU basketball on several different levels, like the roster and how it's built and how transfers affect what he does on a year-to-year basis and what Gonzaga staying in the West Coast Conference means for BYU and why BYU wanted the Zags to stay in the WCC. Like, there, there is so much there. So we're going to break it down. We're going to go next level with uh, the best of the best from Dave Rose yesterday. Loaded conversation with that. Plus, who's tougher to schedule for, football or basketball? And we'll talk to Tooney Knuch, aspiring uh, NFL offensive lineman, and then the setter for top five ranked men's volleyball who is awaiting 
uh, a team to play because they have a bye in the quarterfinals tomorrow. They play next Thursday at home in the conference tournament. My answer to that question is football. It's harder to schedule schedule for football. We'll tell you why it's uh, harder to schedule in basketball than maybe ever before (gasps) as well. Okay. Why the NCAA tournament committee is uh, shaking things up. Oh. And BYU is having to adjust. (sighs) All right. This sounds like an amazing show. And, Jerem, you brought up a good point. And I want to give you some validation now and let you know that here on Screen Cleaning, we will always know your name. Thank you. One time I was at a bookstore called Powell's in Portland. And I said to the lady as I parked downtown, I said, hi, I need some validation. And she said, you're a great person. (laughs) Bless her heart. It took me a minute. You still remembered her name, too. And her name was uh, uh, Jill. Yes. Wow. Yes. Thank you, Jill. And thank you to all the Jills in our lives who provide (laughs) us with that validation that that we so desperately need. Anyway, go get some more validation when uh, BYU Sports Nation comes on here in about four and a half minutes. Okay, we Thanks, will. Jeff. Thanks, brother. Spencer and Jerem. Anyway, as you know, we like to end each show with our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> well, we did highlight. Oh, interesting. Um, (laughs) We did mention many, well, 10 TV shows here on the show today and discuss whether or not they still hold up after all these years. I'm going to mention another TV show because there are so many that we could have talked about that we just couldn't get to. I'm going to mention one show that's current, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that many years from now, I do believe it still will hold up. And speaking of Ted Danson... Ted Danson is has a starring role in this TV show. And the reason I think this show will hold up is because they focus more on the writings. They don't focus as much on the number of episodes. They don't focus as much as trying to have, uh, you know, catchphrases, although there probably certainly could have, uh, there could be some catchphrases pulled from this show. It's a little show called the good place. Now, the premise of The Good Place is you start off in this office setting. Kristen Bell of Frozen fame is this character who has died, and she has now found herself in The Good Place. She's being given a tour around this community that uh, is very pleasant. There's a yogurt stand on every corner, pretty much. Ted Danson is kind of the uh, the architect of this community. And Ted Danson is, as we all know, very delightful. And they're paired up with their soulmate. Who wouldn't want to meet their soulmate, right? Well, the only catch is, and Kristen Bell is not about to tell anyone in this community this little tidbit of information she doesn't belong in the good place because she was not a very good person. And so she divulges this to her soulmate, and it's up to her and her soulmate to keep this little piece of information secret and not let anybody discover this fact so that she doesn't get thrown out and put into the bad place. Very funny show. The end of season one has the greatest twist I've probably ever seen in any TV show. Check it out. It will be coming back for its third season. And again, this is a show that I'm going to predict 
predict will last the test of time or pass the test of time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Screen Cleaning. Go out and check some of these older TV shows. BYU Sports Nation is up next.